0: This show is brought to you by Earpealer.com.
1: What's up, everybody? This is John Bush from Armored Saint, and you are cranking
2: it up. Hey there, this is Joey Vera from Armored Saint, and you are listening to Mars Attack. This is Doyle Wolfgang Blatt Frankenstein. Of Doyle, and you are listening
0: to Mars Attacks. Hey, what do you say? Be careful, because Mars Attacks. This is Bobby Blitz from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attacks.
1: Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave up from Monster Magnet, and you are listening to
0: Mars Attacks. Hey, what's happening? This is Tommy Victor from Prong and Dan's Dig. Hey, all, here's Andreas Kisser from Sepultura and De La Tierra, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Enjoy. Yo, what's up? This is Frank Fellow from Anthrax, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Turn it up! Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Filter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hello, everybody. This is Max Cavalera, Soulfly. You're listening to Mars Attacks. Stay metal. This is Brant Bjork, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. So keep listening. Hey, what's up? This is
2: Kyle from the Sword, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hey everybody,
1: what's happening? This is
0: John Bush, and you're cranking it up on Mars Attacks. Welcome, one and all, to episode 156 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor. And from episode to episode, I say this week we have a special guest or or whatnot, but this is a really special episode for me because this is years in the making. This is a storyteller's episode with John Bush and Joey Vera of Armored Saint. This is something that I have been after uh, looking back at all of my notes and and seeing the various recordings that I have since the inception of the show this is something that I've been after since 2010 so it's seven years in the making and before I jump on into this episode I have to thank right off the bat Nikki Law from Metal Blade for making this happen because I've been knocking on the door for such a long time and she's been great she, if you listen to episode 155, with Fairy Damon from, um, <laughs> this is always such a hard name for me to say, and I had to edit it a bunch of times with the last episode, Anthropomorphia. Man, that was all her helping out, and I've known her since her days at Century Media, and she's been great to me since then, and... She's helped me fulfill this dream of being able to pull this Storytellers episode off, as well as a few other things that are coming within the next few episodes. So right off the bat, I need to thank her. I need to thank you guys for listening and hanging into this show off and on all these years. I know that my health hasn't been the the greatest, and I've had to take uh, various points of time off and and I do thank you guys for hanging in there and coming back every time that I do start releasing new episodes so that is extremely extremely um, I'm extremely grateful for that let's let's say that so and and as a result you know uh, before we go any further let's let's get into our good old uh, rover section of the show this is where we pander To you guys, the audience... Let me explain this. To become a rover, you must either retweet, repost, uh, for now we're going with the likes as well, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so there you go. Uh, if you want to follow any one of those, uh, there are links right there at the top and the bottom of MarsAttacksRadio.com where you can go to the various sites, uh, various social media sites in question. Uh, In any event, uh, I want to thank all these people in advance for helping spread the word. So here we go. The Focus on Metal podcast. Eric Kluber of Iron Knot. We did um, debut a song by the band during the uh, previous episode, during 155, uh, the band Iron Knot also uh, was nice enough to repost via Instagram. Uh, Ken McDonald up there in the Michigan area, he's always been a great, loyal listener. Um, he, he reposted the, the episode. Have a good friend from back home in New Jersey who I personally know, uh, Nikki DiFabrizio. Nikki. What's going on, man? Uh, Great to see that you're checking into the the show here and helping spread the word. Mr. Bill Wang Jr., good friend of the show from way back one as well. Fog Weaver, who always does um, a great job also helping spread the word. Uh, Shane A. Bear, who, similar man, Shane's always there. So I got to thank you for for doing the same and lastly a, a new name to uh, pop up here we have Mahmed Abdullawi. thanks for jumping on board and and liking the show so if you want to be a rover as well uh just do the same man all you have to do is retweet or repost on any one of the other social media platforms that I mentioned on Facebook or Instagram or once again Twitter. So okay, thanks. so real quickly I want to plug all the other things that I have going on. Uh this um this Sunday, uh which will be June twenty fifth, uh, we will release a new episode of the No Metal Cred podcast. This is a Chris Vaglio takeover. Uh, Chris Faglio is my co-host for the Galaxy of Geeks podcast. And Galaxy of Geeks, for those that don't know, is just the name suggests. It's us talking about Star Wars and Marvel and DC and Game of Thrones, Walking Dead, all that good stuff. All sci-fi stuff from the movies to comics to TV, so on and so forth. So I, I threw it out there. I said, Chris... You know and, and I know Chris or let me let me give you this backstory. I know Chris from our college days and Chris had played in a bunch of punk bands and different things He's into all different types of metal and so I said, all right, well I know that there's a whole genre of stuff or a lot of different genres that you're into that that I don't know about. Or that I never really got into. Because for me, No Metal Cred is a lot of rock and a lot of pop stuff. Anywhere from the 80s all the way to today. And sure as shit, (laughs) the episode that he's put together is a post-hardcore episode. So if you're into post-hardcore or want to find out about post-hardcore music. uh, Especially stuff that came out in the middle to late 90s. I definitely recommend you check out No Metal Cred. Episode 7, which is, again, supposed to be posted, or at least that's the idea, which which is tomorrow, um, June 25th. Uh, along that, the other podcast that I do similar to that, and, and I should say No Metal Cred comes out twice a month, and the other two weeks of the month, I release episodes of Fusion Sonica, which is uh, my hard rock and metal Um, music podcast, Uh, each one runs roughly half an hour long, so they're very easy to digest, (laughs) so there you go, Um, I haven't put a new episode of that together yet, so I don't know what I'm going to be releasing in two weeks, or next week I should say, I'm I'm off there, but uh, anyway, yeah, so uh, they're basically music-based podcasts, and I hope that you Check those out. Uh, I have my other podcast, the Victor M. Ruiz podcast, where the last episode, episode twelve, we had uh, Richie from Focus on Metal talking about podcasting nightmares. That was podcasting nightmares five, and podcasting nightmares six will be the next episode that that I release. Of that, that will also feature Richie from Focus on Metal talking about some of the you know shenanigans that. W- we run into as podcasters when dealing with different things that um, that come up so there you go that should also be posted within the the next few days so and uh, outside of all of this guys please go to ear peeler which is my podcasting news uh, site I'm basically pulling from close to a thousand different feeds and posting different episode information from all these different Great shows that are hardworking and may not be mentioned on on other sites. No fault of their own or those sites. There's just a lot of information out there. And I'm just trying to fill a a small niche here by pretty much giving a a voice to the voiceless, if you want me to uh, quote CM Punk there. Um, So yeah, so the idea is if if you want to check out new shows that uh, maybe you're not aware of, um that maybe have interviewed one of your favorite artists or a genre that you're into or you want to check out music-based podcasts. You can go to the site and search by any one of those options that I just mentioned. You can go to the categories drop down and search for music episodes. You can uh go and uh search the site via a specific genre or you could just go to that search bar and type in the name of a band that you're trying to figure out uh, what, uh, what episodes a specific artist has done. In this case, let's say you want to find out about interviews where Joey or John have appeared or Armored Saint in general. You can go to the search bar, type in Armored Saint, and any interview that they've done from any of these shows that I'm uh, pro- not promoting, but reposting, basically trying to get the word out. Uh, you can find out there th- that information there. And if you're a podcaster and your show isn't uh, featured or you don't see any of your episodes coming up, please go to the Contact Us uh, portion of the site and give us your information. and I'll do my best to get your next show up there as soon as possible. Uh, the whole idea is to spread the wealth and help spread you know the word of again, hardworking podcasters both audio and video shows that do a great job with just doing what they're doing. And, uh, you know, at at the same time, I am trying to, uh, you know, parlay that into a little (laughs) money uh, from doing it. So if you're so inclined and want to help out, you can go to the merch store of actually any one of the shows that I mentioned. Well, actually, Mars Attacks has a merch store. Earpealer has a merch store. Uh, no Marvel Cred does as well. And we also have a Patreon for Earpealer. If you decide to pick up merch or click on Amazon links on any one of those sites or any one of the affiliates' uh, advertisements that you see there, uh, it helps out anything that I'm doing. So I greatly appreciate anyone that takes the time to, to do so. I know that everyone and their mother has Amazon links on their shows. Uh, some of us make more money off of it than others. Uh, so yeah, so next time you decide to make a purchase and you want to help a show out, please help us out. Please help me out. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I'm pandering to you, damn it. So no gun to anyone's head. But I know that you fine listeners are all, you know, you all work hard and you all need to choose what, uh, what you want to do with your hard-earned money. But again, if you're so inclined to help out a show, help mine out. <laughs> That's all. Anyway, so let's, let's get on with this episode. So essentially how this is going to work is that I'll be popping in to intro the songs, and you'll hear me chime in from time to time during the different uh, explanations that they give regarding the tracks in question. There's 15 tracks, and I went through and I picked songs off of each one of the albums. Uh, I picked at least two off of each album. I could have done a hell of a lot more, but man, I'm lucky enough to have them talk to me for this amount of time just talking about these 15 tracks. Who knows? Maybe one day we can do the... Armored Saint, The Deeper Cuts. For the most part, these are all songs that if you're an Armored Saint fan, you'll know. Uh, if you're a diehard, obviously, you're going to know everything. But, um, again, if if you like the music that Joey Vera or John Bush have released as part of this band, these will all be familiar to you. So, let's do it! Here we go. The first track on the list of Armored Saint songs as part of this Storytellers edition of Mars Attacks, is Can You Deliver?
1: Um, you know, I have a lot of memories. Um, well, first of all, the video that we made, which was um, uh, pretty... At that time, it seemed actually like it was... um pretty uh cutting edge at least uh at the time um you know it's funny because it was a, a big production video um I don't remember exactly what it probably cost but I would say somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40 grand back then which was a lot but videos were also expensive back then um it was it was a song that I think we were when we were writing it. We actually had a guy who we had a, re- a rehearsal studio that was run by this guy named Tom Santee. He spelled his name T H O M, and then his last name was Santee S A N T E E. And he uh, had the studio, and um, he used to be in a band back in the day in the seventies that went into maybe the early eighties called Razu R A Z U, and he was a guitar player of that band. And then he ended up opening the studio and. He kind of looked like a uh, like a puppy dog, and we used to call him that, like, dude, puppy dog. He, was, but you know, he, he was a man. Uh, but anyway, we used to bust his balls pretty good. But I think he actually helped helped us write that song in some way. I don't remember exactly how, but I feel like we were working on it, and then he kind of just popped into the studio because he owned it, and he was there hanging out, and. Um, I I don't know, maybe we came up with a lyrical idea or uh, we were joking about something, and he goes, I I don't remember exactly how it came about, but then I think he did have a hand in kind of suggesting a couple things, because he was in this band who was older and he probably had some more experience than us, well, he did have more experience, and then he kind of helped us, we never really gave him credit, but um, uh, he kind of helped us kind of maybe arrange it and stuff, but uh, it went on to be... One of our most popular songs, of course, still to this day, and um, and certainly was our first video, so it was probably uh, the world's introduction to Armored Saint, as far as March of the Sane goes. And our, you know, of course, we had our EP prior to that, but you know, that was our first first full length major label record, and um, and it was the song that kind of really kind of got the ball rolling. And uh, to this day, it's still one of our most popular songs, and. Um, you know, it's just a kind of a a bluesy hard rock, you know, Aerosmithy type tune, but it does have the big chorus. And um, we always used to laugh saying that you know Domino's Pizza should use it as you know uh, uh, a song for a, you know one of their campaigns, and it would be huge. And then we would you know do well. So, <laughs> so but that hasn't happened yet.
0: <laughs> There's still a chance. You know, who knows? Maybe they'll listen I mean, to this and. The light will go off.
1: Well, I mean, you know, people are using. You know, it's funny, like commercials, and uh, and that's what I do. You know, my wife is a casting director for commercials, and we have a studio that casts commercials. I'm here now, and we're going to work today. And um, and uh, you know, back in the day, you know, 20 years ago, people putting songs in commercials—that was horrible. You would never do that, or or even actors, you know, big name actors being in commercials—you would never do that. That was embarrassing. That was disgraceful. Well, Well, dude, that's all changed now. I mean, having a song in a commercial is totally successful and very happening. So, um, you know, that's what's happening with with Armored Saint. And, um, you know, we we had some good times back then, and uh, we played some rad shows. And Armored Saint, you know, Can You Deliver still lives on as to, you know, probably one of our most popular and famous songs. So there you go.
0: Very cool. actually just wrote an article today on how um, music and commercials tie in together, how Zeppelin this week, the uh, Immigrant Song, charted for the first time in the States uh, due to the fact that it's included in a uh, Marvel trailer. So. Oh, really?
1: That's funny. Yeah, I mean, you know, Stones kind of started, it was Start Me Up, I think it was with Apple, you know, and I think they got like a million dollars or something. and. Um, and you know now actors like actors again would never do commercials they would you know that's what that whole movie Lost in Translation is about is about uh, the character of Bill Murray going to Japan doing this commercial and that's what people used to do George Clooney and Brad Pitt they would go to Japan get all this money and promote some beer or something that's changed now I mean the the Super Bowl which is the biggest commercial day in the year for America every single spot last commercial had a big name actor in it so it's all changed, and it's funny because commercials actually you don't make as much money as you used to make because of you know the the changes in the contracts and with SAG and obviously with you know things like direct uh, you know and it's changed the way people watch television. So they're actually coming a little late with it, but um, you know it's still a very successful way to to make. Uh, you, you know to be to make a lot of money in a short amount of time because you only work for a couple of days if you even work for that and um and as far as getting songs on you know tv shows or commercials that's like a great avenue for bands these days and i'm um, you know we got one on a show ncis los angeles and i still see royalties from it and Um, and we're supposedly we're, well, I can't talk about that, but supposedly there's going to be another Avenue for us to have a song in somewhere, but I'm, I'm supposed to keep mom about that. But you know, I would love to keep, I would love to get a song in a commercial, man. I'd be over the moon (laughs) and can you deliver? would be the one. So Domino's or pizza hut or Papa John's, all these absolute commercial pizza places in America. Listen up.
0: All right. So for those of you that don't know, John has almost always handled the lyrical portion of what Armored Saint has done. And Joey has been involved or involved with Dave Pritchard uh, or been the main composer for a lot of this stuff after Dave passed away. So that's why I wanted this dynamic of getting both sides of sort of the main composers of the band. They're not the only composers. They're just the guys that do a lot of what, what goes on. Uh, for those that also don't know, Joey has obviously done a lot of the production with the band also. In any event, interesting, Razoo. Does Joey Vera have anything to say about Razoo as well? Let's check out what Joey Vera has to say about Can You Deliver?
2: Well, it's definitely one of the early, earlier songs that we have written. And I don't know if many people, I mean, it's, it's pretty public knowledge, but I don't know if many people know that um, the band was started sometime around, um, I'm going to say the fall of 80, no, I'm going to say like early 82. Okay and uh, at that time i was in another band i was playing with another another group of guys and the Armed Saint guys were you know they were starting a band they were just starting they were just jamming and so forth without a bass player and then they couldn't get they basically couldn't talk me into getting to just dropping my band and joining them right away so there was they were playing with another guy for a while um but in the meantime they were writing and they had written a few songs stricken by fate and never alone were for the first two i think that i remember that they wrote that the band wrote and um but what can you deliver the memories i have about can you deliver and a couple of other songs is that we when i joined the group a few months later it was probably around may um we started to write a lot more material because up until that time the Armored Saint was playing maybe 50% covers and 50% originals. So um, when I came into the group in around May, we decided that we weren't going to do any more covers and write all original music. And I believe Kenny Deliver was one of the first batches of those brand new songs. Um, And um, as I have a funny memory about that one is that we used to rehearse in this studio that was um, owned by uh, a guy that we knew that was in a local band called Razu and he was also a, kind of a local hotshot guy in the area that we grew up in his name was Tom Santee and he was a guitar player and they were all very seasoned players and stuff um, but he owned this rehearsal place and he he kind of liked he gravitated towards us, he liked us because we were young punks and um, he you know thought we had I don't know I don't know what he thought really <laughs> but uh, uh, but he used to help us with advice and stuff and that was he was he was pretty good about that and I specifically remember him saying something about this helping us arrange the solo section of the of the of that song I don't remember exactly what he offered but I remember him being in the room and, and and just sitting with us playing the song and then him offering his, you know, hey, why don't you guys do this and do that? And it was probably one of the very few times um, someone has given us advice when we actually listened to it. But I think he uh, that's the memory I have about Candy Deliver.
0: Keeping things with 1984's March of the Saint, this is the title track off of that album, "March of the Saint." Let's check out John Bush's comments.
1: Yeah, well, "March of the Saint" also, you know, is a title track from the first record. It's uh, it's a song that we opened up with for a long time in our career. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a driving, powerful, uh, upbeat anthem song. Um, it was funny because the guy who was our I don't know if I told you this before, but the guy who signed us, Ron Fair, who's a, the, you know, the, the guy who brought us the Chrysalis Records, who is a very talented musician in his own right, he used to always tell us how amazing March of the Saint was, because he would play it on piano, and go, look at the chord changes here, and he would say, it's really genius, and it was funny, and he was like, he would play it, and it would sound awesome on a piano, and um, yeah, you know, it's it's still, again, like Can You, it's, you know, they're both on the same record, and they they both have this kind of big chorus and um, they're still huge fan favorites and um, you know we love playing them it's uh, going into the opening riff of March usually always it gets the crowd uh, you know to a, a fever pitch and um, you know it's it has a great beat it's uh, it's just a classic Armored Saints song so um, we'll probably play until the day we're dead and you know, that's okay.
0: Is there ever a point in time where you think, you know, I, I wish I could switch this song out for something else off of the first album?
1: Of course. And it was funny because I was talking, I did this thing with um, Pledge Music where um, where I talked to some fans on the phone. That was you know, one of the, the things that you could uh, purchase was a conversation with John Bush. That um, was really cool because I ended up talking to some very diehard fans who were, who were very... Um, appreciative and um, you know just uh, very passionate about what we're saying. And this one girl said, you know, well, you don't have to play Can You Deliver every time. I said, really? Do we? Can we not? You know, okay, all right, I'm taking your word for it then. Because I think that, you know, I, I mean, we've discussed this before, Victor, but yeah. I think you know, playing the same songs is just tedious. And I think taking songs out of the set is, is healthy. And then you bring them back and you're excited again. So we haven't really done that with Can You or March um, we kind of just feel like we kind of have to play those songs. Um, but at some point, maybe we'll make that decision where we'll say, OK, let's let's take it out for a while and then we'll bring it back. And, and you know, that's I think that's OK. Um, but we haven't done it yet. So and March, you know, it had the great cover. And um, mm-hmm. it was cool because Dave Pritchard, um, he was a really talented artist himself. So he actually he actually um, went to England because that's where the art was being Uh, created and um, the label flew him over to England and he stayed with Peter Mensch um, from Q Prime and he helped kind of oversee the artwork being done on the cover there and uh, that was a pretty fun exciting time for Dave I'm sure I remember he kept Peter kept saying that he kept every time he'd get in the car he'd go into you know where the passenger side would be in America but that's where the driver's side is and he kept he, went, he did like three or four times, and Peter would say, "England, England, other side." <laughs> it's pretty funny. I I remember that, you know. But it was I'm sure it was a cool experience for Dave to get to go do that, and and he kind of helped orchestrate, like I say, that cover art. And that cover art is synonymous with Armored Saint as well. It's
0: cool. Ever wonder about the intro to March of the Saint? Joey Veer is going to explain exactly how that came about during this segment.
2: March of the Saint. Uh, that's another one. Uh, you know, when I, when I got into the band, we, like I said, we started steam only with original material. And, um, that was another song that, that came about. I believe that, um, I believe that's a Dave Pritchard riff, um, as was Kenny deliver, I think. Um, and, uh I think that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, we were very much influenced by a lot of things in going on in Europe at that time. And one of which was the band Accept, and, um, this was probably our answer to fast as a shark. Um, <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, that's, uh, that's the other memory I have about that. And the, and the only other thing that maybe is a, a little bit of interest is, uh, the intro piece to that on the recorded, uh, the recorded version of it, the Chrysalis studio version, is a is a piece from um, um Pictures at an Exhibition. I believe it's a part of the Great Gate of Kiev, and um, it was something that we used to use as an intro. Um, we just, you know, back then it was you you would. Basically, copy it on a cassette from an LP. That's what we used to, (laughs) and that's what we used as our intro. So we used to actually open with the Great Gate of Kiev, this one section of pictures at an exhibition. And while we were getting ready to record it, um, we decided, you know, it would be cool if we we actually played this thing, you know. So we didn't, we never actually really used to play it. As a band, it was always recorded, and it was you know it was you know i think it's i don 't know the Russian Symphony Orchestra or something, and that 's what we used as our intro when we play live. but when we actually recorded it, we decided why don 't we actually figure this out on guitars and bass and actually play it so that's a little bit of tidbit of news on that one
0: all right before moving on, I want to give a quick shout out to the Nashville Rock and Pod Expo, something that I was invited to, but unfortunately. I cannot attend. A lot of very cool podcasts and podcasters will be attending this expo. Uh, you have the guys from Decibel Geek Podcast, Rock and Metal Combat, Rock and Roll, Pods and Sods Network, Joey from Rocks x Ten. You're going to have a bunch of um, Kiss-based podcasts like Pod Kiss and the Kiss Room, um, a podcast for Rock City. And uh, you'll have the guys from, uh, actually, KISS FAQ as well. I don't want to miss anybody here. Um, Cobras and Fire, uh, Talk To Me, Talking Metal, uh, Tramps Like Us, which is a Bruce Springsteen podcast, Ken Mills and his various podcasts, uh, let's see, Double Stop Podcast, and Michael Butler, one of the originators of the hard rock and metal podcasting genre from the rock and roll Geek Show will be there as well. There's there's a bunch of others. I don't want to spend, I'd love to spend 30 minutes here just talking about it. And maybe we'll have an episode on this before everything kicks off. But um, I just want to remind you guys that if you do want to attend uh, the expo, go to their website to find out more information, which is Nashville Rock N. Pod Expo. That's N, as in not the word and, but the letter N. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, if you want to help out, they're still trying to raise some money to um, uh, to sort of get the thing off the ground per se. Uh, the idea is for them to be able to completely fund this year's Rock and Pod Expo, and maybe leave some money so that this can take place next year as well. They're looking to do this on a yearly basis. If you want to find out more again? Go to Nashville Rock and Pod Expo.com. If you're a fan of the movie Rock and Roll or Rock and Roll Jesus Heavy Metal Parking Lot, you'll be in for a great surprise because there's going to be a bunch of people from this movie that are going to appear at the expo as well as a ton of musicians. And producers and authors, everyone from Greg uh, Renoff, who did a great book on Van Halen, Van Halen Rising, is going to be there. The much-acclaimed producer, Toby Wright, is going to be there. Uh, Gary Corbett, who shared a bunch of great Kiss-related stories about his time in the band, Um, he's going to be there. There are a bunch of different uh, artists that have been announced so far, so... Again, go to the site, check it out. And if you're so inclined to donate, there is a donate here uh, graphic that you'll see, and it'll take you to the uh, GoFundMe site, which is, in any event, gofundme.com forward slash rock and pod expo. Or you can catch up, or you can find out more, or follow them, I should say, right there on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash. Nashville Rock and Pod Expo. Let's get back to the episode. The, we're, we're actually transitioning over to 1985's Delirious Nomad, a track that a lot of people, including my good friend Bob Nalbandian of the Inside Metal series, <laughs> um, amongst other great, great things that Bob has been involved in, anyway, a track that he's always referred to as Delirious Nomad, but the name of the track is Nervous Man. John Bush will discuss this in a second.
1: Nervous Man. Well, another one of those more famous songs of Armour Saint, uh, one of the hits. It was cool because um, it has the title Delirious Nomad in it, but we, for some reason, I don't know, I guess I was trying to be creative wanted to change wanted to call the song nervous man um which obviously a lot of people probably who maybe are fans but not diehards think it's called delirious nomad uh, because that's the part i say in it the you know at the end of the chorus um it's grad song you know delirious was our experimental record where we started kind of going let's let's not be so heavy on the classic anthems of armored sane and let's kind of be a little bit more uh uh let's try to get a little deeper with what we're trying to do which i think kind of pissed off q prime and maybe even the label um especially as that being our second record we're already going hey we're going to be experimental now they're like what um but um Nervous Man's a great song. It has that awesome intro with, um, you know, the guitar that has the delay on it, and it's, um, you know, alive. It, You he, Jeff hits those chords, and the, you know, the fans know it, and it's. It just has this kind of ominous beginning to it. Um, a cool harmony between Joey and I in the choruses. Um, really heavy, you know, slow, especially the core, uh, the solo part. It was just really powerful and heavy with the killer solo in it. Um, Kind of a song I wrote about being a spy and always being on the run and um, trying to be mysterious because of your line of work. I don't know. Again, I was trying to branch out lyrically. I think it was the beginning of me saying I could write about different stuff and not just, um, you know, March of the Saint and Can You Deliver sex songs and, you know, anthem big Marching, you know, go on to battle songs. It was me trying to be a little bit more experimental lyrically that record, in, in particular. Um, and it's it's a great Armored Sand song, you know. It's um, it's uh, it's it's the second track on the record, and um, still a great live song to this day. We have taken that one out of the set periodically, and then brought it back, which is which is nice.
0: Is there anything specific that you remember about? butting heads with the labels uh, with regards to this album? Or was it just them not wanting you guys to experiment and sort of give them, you know, the um, as you said, like a, a new wave of British heavy metal type thing with this album? Well, you guys steer somewhere else?
1: Well, you know what happened is that at that point, we were, um, you know, we were this band that were wearing these outfits, and we had these big epic songs that were, you know, very anthem-driven. And I, I think that for us even though we were all just like turning 22, we still wanted to do something more. You know, we, we just yearned to be broader than that. And, uh, maybe we we're just being rebellious. I don't know, actually to be, I don't think we were just being doing things in spite of the, the label or the fan base or anything. I think we were just always looking to broaden the style of the band. And that's why we did that. And, um, you know, that's, that's what we did. So, you know, you know, the cover and the back cover had that kind of ghostly figure like really the back cover should have been the front cover. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think we thought there was too much going on. So that's why we simplified it. And there was always the joke I think Gonzo was always disappointed with the cover and he used to say, why do we get Billy Idol's cousin on our album cover? And it was funny, but um, we were, again, we were kind of touching into the whole, you know, thread of nuclear war and, you know, I was a big fan of uh, Unforgettable Fire at that point, and uh, the, trying to really kind of use Bono as inspiration for writing different types of lyrics. And um, hey, you know, Armored Saints always this band that kind of has this. Um, I think we have a lot of foresight as to the future. I mean, and now we're and now in America we're kind of being threatened with that same thing with our 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 battles with North Korea here verbally and stuff. So I mean, you know, stuff is uh, you know, we're in a kind of a precarious time again so um, you know you could always kind of look back at Armored Saints songs and go wow now this is really uh, affecting us again maybe but um, you know I think we were just always wanting to like I said branch out and and try different things and uh, experiment and that was the beginning of it right there You know, so um, I, I think the label thought we had some cool tunes I just think that they probably wanted it to still be you know this LA based kind of you know, big image band. And um, and at that point, we were starting to kind of go, eh, I don't know we love that so much. So,
0: All right. You got John's take on Nervous Man. Let's see what Joey has to say from a musical standpoint about the track off of 1985's Delirious Nomad.
2: Nervous Man. Um, that one is a the joint, joint riff effort between Pritchard and myself. Um, I remember, uh, it's funny. Memory I have these little weird memories I have. Um, <laughs> I don't know what they mean, but, um, um, Dave Pritchard had the main, um, the main part of the, basically the verse sections, which it's in a, and he had this, he had a, he had this riff basically, and and he just would play it over and over and over. And he, but we didn't have anywhere else to go from there. We didn't have a next section or any other parts. It was just playing this one riff over and over and over. And I happened to have a similar riff in the key of it, well in E, and so I I told Dave and I said, hey, check this out. I have this part in E, why don't we put them together? And so he, I showed him the part in E and then he played, the, he played them back to back and he, and he, I remember his face lighting up like this, uh, <laughs> like there's a light bulb went off in his head. Oh my God, that's perfect. So the, that's how the song ended up was, uh, you know, the first section was the verse and the second section ended up being the chorus. Um, and it ended up being kind of a catchy chorus. So, um, uh, that's my little summer, funny memory about Nervous about Man.
0: Keeping things on the Delirious Nomad album, let's hear John Bush's comments on the track, The Laugh.
1: Yeah, that's funny you chose that one. Um, well, the, the cool thing about The Laugh is um, it was actually an old song. It was during the March of the Saint um, time, which is weird because it really did... It wouldn't have fit on March of the Saint, it seems like to me. But um, we—that was one of the when we did our first set of demos. We did two songs, and that was um, March and Mutiny, Mutiny on the World. And then we did a, another set of demos, and it was what was it? Um, I, but it, the other song was the Laugh, and uh, what was the first song? Maybe it's Seducer. Yeah, I think it was, but. Uh, then we had the laugh as the other, and that was the the demos that basically helped us get our record deal, um, and we did those with ron fair, who 's the guy who spoke who signed us and the laugh was one of them, so it was kind of weird like that was like a at this point still that sounds a kind of a deep track and but it was during that part where we <clears throat> we wrote it during the march at the same time and um it's a cool song, you know. It's it's kind of very Aerosmith-inspired and influenced. A um, little sarcasm of the lyrics. Again, just writing stuff, you know, kind of uh, saying, you know, I'm always going to be laughing at you uh, in regards to, you know, what happens with my career, my success. Um, uh, maybe it's still just it, – there was a lot of bravado with Armored Saint in the early days as far as um, – just kind of having this attitude that we were better than anybody. And, um, you know, we're you were young, so we, we had that, which I think is okay because it just made us, you know, have a lot of confidence. But we weren't dicks about it. You know, we certainly had all the peers that we played with um, – in the early days in the 80s in L.A., we certainly got along with everybody, but I do think we always felt like we just kind of didn't fit completely in with, you know, the Rats and the Grey Whites and the Steelers and the Black and Blues. We liked all those guys, you know, we really did, and I I still think to this day we could play with some of those bands, but I still think that we felt like we were a little bit different, we were a little bit heavier, we were a little bit more inspired by, you know, the, the English heavy metal bands and stuff, and... Um and so, I guess that was kind of a response. I think something like the laugh was a response of kind of looking down, not looking down, but kind of you know giving an attitude maybe to our peers at that point, point. and I think that's what that kind of song is kind of exemplifying
0: but well, that's interesting that you mentioned playing with all those bands and and thinking that there isn't an issue playing with them because I think. You're probably among the only ones to say that because you hear so many other bands that even weren't from L.A. that that will say, oh, no, no, I'll never play with this band or that band because it would ruin our image or it would do this or do that. And it's interesting that you honestly don't care. You just sort of just want to do your thing and have no issue with what those bands are personally doing. Yeah,
1: I mean, I don't care. I mean, and, you know, Armored's saying we there's a lot that we could play with a lot of bands, and then there's you know bands that we're always coupled with, or some bands that we are that we shouldn't play with. Um, and you know, it was funny. I said something about doing some shows with Wasp recently. I think because my son is all into Wasp, which is weird. But um, as a matter of fact, he saw the bass player, and when we played with them uh, in Belgium at the Alcatraz Festival. And he kept saying, "Did you play Wild Child? Did you play this song? Did you play that song?" And he was looking at my little, you know, at that time, eight-year-old son. He's like, "You know all those songs." It was hilarious. But um, you know, I thought, huh, you know, because we played with the classic Armored Saint Wasp Metallica tour still to this day is is looked at as a great tour. So I was like, maybe we should do some shows with Wasp. But you know, I don't know. I don't. I haven't had any contact with. You know, some somebody like Black. I never had contact with Blackie really, you know, we weren't friends or anything. But we did do like shows with them, and I thought that would be a cool, cool show. You know, we don't need to go out for a, a month necessarily to do a tour, but I thought that Urban Saint Wasp would be a great tour. Um, yeah. uh, so I don't know. I, you know, again, we played with those bands. I, I I liked all those bands. You know, Rat. You know, now they they regrouped. You know, Stephen, Warren. It's cool um yeah i don't know whatever i i think it's i I wouldn't have an issue with that uh as as long as it seems like it would be a good show and it seems like people would be excited i mean we were from la it's not like we're trying to disown that we were and we're proud of from being los from los angeles
0: so all right awesome john bush's comments on the laugh let's throw it over to joey verrett to see what he remembers about recording or working on this track initially.
2: The laugh. It's a weird song. Um I think that's a song that was mostly written by me. Um, and uh I'm trying to remember this song. You know, we were going through this kind of period beginning with um, with um Delirious Nomad where we began to sort of, um, we, we sort of wanted to rebel against what we were going through with the record business and in particular, our record company Chrysalis. Um, and so we were sort of making an effort to challenge ourselves as writers and, um, you know, just trying to do things a little bit different. And, um, we, uh, I mean, that song certainly isn't like reinventing a wheel or anything, but you know, you have to understand that like when we made March of the saint, and when we first got signed, you know, we, the, we were this type of band that um, was very raw and high energy live band. We still are really um, now on stage and everything. And, but when we got signed, the people at the label sort of saw us as potentially being something different and they they really were trying to guide us in a much more radio-friendly way. And we felt very betrayed and sort of, um, you know, we just didn't see eye to eye with that point of view. So we started to write songs that were, you know, just a little more like, in our minds anyway, trying to be artistic, you know, more artistic than anything. And eventually we, we began to try too hard to do that, but, The last is probably one of those songs where it was probably an attempt to try to do something a little bit different and a little less like, you know, predictable, I I guess I would say. So um, that's, that's a, that was our way of, that was one of the songs where we were trying to sort of stretch our, you know, our new boundaries.
0: And when you say that you were trying to resist against the label, they, so so when you went to go in to record this album, they initially wanted you to be something, wanted you to be more of what you guys had done on the first album? Or did, you're saying that they wanted to push you to be even more commercial than the first album?
2: No. Um, by the time we were doing, well, by the time, it was really only our, our follow-up. Um, it was only our second record. But we were we showed so much dissatisfaction with the first record that we demanded that we wanted to go in and make our record. And so pretty much they kind of said, all right, well, see what you got. And they kind of took, took their, took a stand back. And that's why we wanted to hire Max Norman to produce it because we liked Max's work. He was a metal guy. He understood more where we came from, you know, Um, he did great work with Ozzy and with sabotage and loudness at that time. And, So we, we wanted to make, we purposely went in and said, we're going to make our record. Um, And um, it's pretty obvious to me looking at both records back to back. Um, But, you know, they still, you know, I think that we had enough in us to where we said, look, you know, you got to trust us, you know, and, you know, they did. And, you know, it, it the record ended up being what it was and um so that was that was i mean really we went from like making a record that's sort of really polished and high production uh, even though i think the production's terrible but um from march of the saint to you look at delirious nomad and the delirious nomad's such a darker sounding record it's just it's just darker the music's darker and the sounds are darker um and it, we represented more where we were at mentally. Um, So they actually ended up giving us that freedom and we actually, but that was a battle that we actually won. Raising fear is another story. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but raising fear was, was more of them saying, well, it started out anyway with them saying, um, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do this. They hired a songwriter to work with us. And we agreed just to just to you know satisfy that curiosity, but we ended up firing him in about ten days. It just didn't wasn't working. We we hated it. It was terrible. So we fired him, and we said we're not doing this. We're going to produce the record with Chris Minto, the engineer who for, who produced who engineered March of the Saint. We said this, we're going to do it our way. And at that point, they pretty much gave up on us. And I said, all right here's your money, go make your record. And then after that, they dropped it. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I guess we had it coming.
0: (laughs) Wrapping up 1985's Delirious Nomad there with Joey talking about The Laugh. We go forward to 1987's Raising Fear. And what does the band Little Feet have to do with Armored Saint? (laughs) That's going to be a big topic of discussion for the two of them, as well as them transitioning from a five-piece down to a four-piece. That's going to be something that at least John is going to talk about initially. And you're going to hear a phrase that both of them are going to bring up that tie into that Little Feet thing that I just said. And uh, they're both going to mention it, so... It's interesting. If you follow me on Facebook at all, I mentioned something about this earlier on in the week when I edited both of their comments, when I did the edits. I was fumble on that. Anyway, let's get into John Bush's comments regarding the title track of 1987's Raising Fear.
1: Raising Fear. Well... Um... That was the beginning of Armored Saint going to, into a four-piece. You know, Phil left the band in the recording of, of Delirious Nomad. And um, so at that point, we kind of entertained being a five-piece. We auditioned a couple different people, one being Jeff, who we really kind of wanted to be in the band. And I think Jeff was just headstrong about staying with Odin. That was his band. And he they were doing well, so he wanted to, you know, follow it through, which is understandable. And so at that point, we decided, well, you know, let's just stay a four-piece, which... Really, it really wasn't our fate to stay a four-piece because we just had too many guitar things going on and we couldn't reproduce it live no matter how good Dave was. But that was the beginning of a small period of time where we went to be a four-piece, which probably messed with our identity even more because we had some issues with our identity through the years and, and that was probably one of them. Um, are they a, they're, now they're a four-piece? They were a five-piece and two-guitars. guitar. Now but in any case... Raising Fear was that record, and Raising Fear was kind of a weird record because we recorded it in two different times. We recorded like half the record, and then we went back in and reworked a bunch of songs, and then went back in and finished the rest of the record. So that was not probably the most uh, fluid way of making an album uh, at all. It certainly would, wouldn't probably want to do that again, um, and I think it, kind of, it just kind of messed with, with our, our focus we also worked with this songwriter guy that the label brought in. His name was Phil Brown. He used to be in Little Feet. And um, and he just, you know, he was a nice enough guy, and he was trying to work with us, but, like, his perspective was just not ours. He would tell us things like, it's all about white limos and chicks. And we're like, no, it's not. the fuck are you talking about? Like, fuck <laughs> you. What, what is that? It's stupid. And so, you know, we were just, we had this attitude about working with, we were kind of pushed to work with this guy and, you know, we were very rebellious to it. And, um, uh, you know, he probably gave us a couple of good ideas and, and I can't really remember what songs he was, he worked on, but I don't think raising fear was one, but, um, you know, raising fear is the song that people dig. They, you know, it's a, it's a powerful track. It's, it has kind of these weird time changes and, um, and Joey, I think, and Joey wrote the most of it. Joey and Dave, I think, combined. Um, you know, it's it's a it has the the powerful uh, chorus, uh, although it's kind of disjointed at the same time. So, um, you know, it, it was uh, it was the beginning of the of the the two. Uh, two-piece band in a sense because you know we had um delirious nomad and then we followed it up with raising fear and that was when we again like i said we went to being a a two uh, one person one guitar band and it just it just wasn't really right you know but you know there are still some great songs on that album um and raising fear is the as the title track the cover was kind of cool because Joey's dad worked on it, and he was an art director, and we, we said, hey, create this cover for us, and he kind of orchestrated it. He, didn't, he actually didn't um, paint it, but he did kind of uh, put it all together as an art director, and that was fun because you know, it was Joey's father, and he was involved in it. And um, <clears throat> The idea of the cover I thought was pretty cool, this night coming through the city and kind of you know, the idea of it taking over, and that was, that was pretty cool you know maybe it wasn't as evil as it could have been or as as mean looking as it could have been but uh, you know still people dig that cover and when we've done um, old school t-shirts and we've done Raising Fear it's it's actually sold pretty well so um, yeah you know it's uh, our third major label album and and it was made by the time we were all probably 24 years old and um, it was amazing that we had three major label records and all and and started touring all you know before we turned twenty five That was quite an accomplishment
0: was the cover the band's idea or was that something that the label wanted you guys to do?
1: I, know, I think it was our idea i can 't really remember exactly what it whose idea it was, but I think it was ours.
0: Joey got into talking a little bit about raising fear at the tail end of him discussing the laugh. Let's pick things up right where he continued to talk about Raising Fear. And as I sort of alluded to before, you're going to hear him talk about the uh, white limos and chicks comment as well.
2: Well, Raising Fear, John probably told you about the concepts of all that, lyrically and everything. We were in a pretty frustrated part of our career um, during the writing of Raising Fear, Um, our management company who was at the time Q prime who we have, you know, we have, we're fine. We have a fine relationship with these people now, but at the time it was, you know, they were frustrated with us because they didn't know what to do with us. And we were frustrated with them because we sort of expected them to do something for us. (laughs) And um, so it was just, you know, it was a marriage that was ending and, it was hard for us to swallow. And, um, so we were very sort of angry and frustrated and raising fear was written, written in response to, um, a situation where we felt like we were being ignored and, um, uh, you know, people weren't returning calls and just, you know, it was that whole thing of being in the dark. So, um, that song was very much written out of anger (laughs) Um, musically and lyrically. So, um, you know, again, a little bit of an identity crisis song, in my opinion. Um, I think that we were um, battling internally as well, not just with our management and our label, but we were battling internally with like, you know, what are we, you know, what kind of, where do we don't, we had trouble fitting in with genre splitting, which was happening at that time. We're talking about 86, 87, where thrash metal was becoming more popular. Um, and then you had a splinter off on the other side with a lot of the bands that got signed in our city at the in the, in the early 80s. Rat, Black and Blue, Wasp, um, you know, a little bit later, you know, other bands, Poison, you know, and the, the list goes on. Um they were splitting off. So we were sort of like, where are we? We, we were too light for the thrashers and we're too heavy for the hair bands. So where are we? And so we felt like we had more in common with the thrashers, but at the same time, we just wanted to write good songs and good music and the core of our influence was primarily, you know, British and European, but we also really were influenced by bands like Aerosmith and Ted Nugent and Cheap Trick and, you know, American bands. Um, and so we felt like we wanted to exploit everything that we were influenced by. But that was, in a sense, maybe hurting us because our identity was getting clouded by all that. So Raising Fear represents, to me anyway, uh, a, a confused part of our career when we were sort of trying a bit too hard maybe too hard to impress people too hard to adapt to the change in the music landscape um and uh and also like i said uh, a lot of it was stuff that was going on in our personal lives with with the business
0: and that's interesting with all the bands that you mentioned because obviously you guys had played with Metallica and Wasp and Walp yeah. and Great white, so you guys towed the line between these bands as well it, you guys didn't shy away from playing with you know one one side or, or or the other. you guys sort of did your thing,
2: yeah, you know it was like we could kind of hang with anybody, but um but we could, but it was but it was it, the longer the longer. In our career, it went the more apparent it became that we we couldn't really hang with everybody. (laughs) It was sort of like you guys got to make up your mind, you know. Like uh, for a long time, when the thrasher we'd play in front of thrash crowds, it was like, "What's up with these guys in the armor?" You know, they they thought we were, you know, wearing costumes. What's up with you know? Not everybody, mind you, but a percentage of crowds would be confused and like, eh, but I don't, I don't like the image thing, you know, granted, uh, you know, understandable, I suppose, but, uh, it's it's part of the reason why we ended up dropping it, dropping the whole image thing was because we felt like, eh, I don't think we need this, this costume thing, you know? So the most important thing to us was always the music. So let's just make music. (laughs)
0: Whenever putting a list together of tracks or best ofs or even when I do my classic albums list, there is always some sort of push and pull with either the artists that I talk to or labels or fans or whatnot about uh, what to talk about, what not to talk about. The next track they're going to talk about, Chemical Euphoria, is definitely a track that they've played quite a bit over the years. Uh, obviously, for any band uh picking a set list or picking what tracks are gonna work and what doesn't work is is a chore you sort of have to play that fine line between what works for them and what works for the audience so uh one of the themes that you're gonna hear from time to time is about them wanting to switch things up with different parts of of the songs that are picked. I picked chemical euphoria because it is one of their, you know, better known tracks off of, uh, not only raising fear, but it's something that obviously has been a staple in their live, uh, performances. So, or their live set list per se. Uh, anyway, let's get into John Bush's comments on chemical euphoria.
1: Awesome song. Uh, still one of the fan favorites from, uh, that record. Um, you know, I think I wrote, I read a article in like Newsweek or Time Magazine about the problem with crack cocaine in, in America at that time and inspired me. Um, again, trying to, you know, be more broad lyrically. Um, and, um, I'm really proud of those lyrics because I think that, you know, they just kind of you know, they, they touched on, especially at the time, about what crack was doing in, in the inner cities in America. and um, uh, Great riff. Joey, I think, wrote the bulk of that song. Um, has this, you know, really uh, just a killer. It's very Joey Vera, the, the riff uh, of that song. Um, uh, very powerful live you know i had that kind of galloping trip to it um big chorus um you know probably sometimes when there's there's only one song that we play off raising fear it's usually chemical although we we have played the title track as well and we have played human vulture recently as well um, and we used to always play Book of Blood back in the day, because we would extend the middle section of that song and and um, do it like a guitar trade-off thing. But at the end of the day, I think Chemical is hands down our favorite song from that record to play live. And, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's... I'm proud of that song. I think it's... Um, it just has uh, a, a deep meaning to it.
0: Cool. I mean, yeah. Obviously, from your description, that's Taking things way beyond, you know, can you deliver March to the Saints? <laughs>
1: right, no doubt about it. Um, you know, I think that again, you know, I and and it's funny because still to this day, I feel like I can write anything. You know, I can write about whatever. It doesn't have to be this, um, you know, uh, silly kind of theme behind it you know i i feel like it you know even right with when hands down lately that i feel like i can write about anything i want and um you know i know that sometimes i've i think i told you this before but sometimes heavy metal you know it i feel like the lyrical content has to be a certain way and um, i just don't adhere to that i kind of feel like whatever i feel like writing about you know i'm not saying the drugs is you know the most creative thing or most unique thing in the world because it certainly isn't um But just uh, for at least at that point for us, it was it was uh, about writing something that, um, you know, that that was a little heavier of the topic. And, and, you know, drugs was a part of Armored Saints life for a while. You know, we did experiment with uh, cocaine for a while. We were banned from L.A. and we. And we were part of LA's heavy metal scene in the 80s, and uh, most people drank a lot and did a lot of coke, and we were not uh, exceptions to that rule. So I think we could identify it with it, and um, it, it made it kind of, um, you know, a little bit easier to write about because we had, you know, we we you know, "Tribal Dance" is another song that has you know this drug kind of uh, topic, and I don't know, I guess, you know, we weren't writing from, like, I wonder what, or I wonder if, it's like, we knew, so. Right.
0: Well, I think this is the the Kiss John Bush portion of of the episode, but I think definitely lyrical content is something that has definitely separated what, you know, you guys have done, or what you've done, both in Anthrax and in Armored Saint, from a lot of the pitfalls that a lot of the other bands have had, where, you know, band X gets back together and you just feel like you're listening to regurgitated lyrics of their hits as opposed to, you know, taking things in another direction and, you know, making it something different. So when you're actually listening to the song, you want to listen to it because the the content is different and not just the same old, same old.
1: Well, I completely agree with that. You know, that's uh, just that's I, I that's certainly the way I look at creating songs and writing songs and certainly lyrics you know I wanted to um, you know take it a little bit further and and that's that's what I've done and that's what we've done as a band and um, you know we, we keep striving to do that you know in particular myself so um, I'm proud of the lyrics I've written you know I really am I think I, you know, I've done a I don't know I just feel like I, like I said, I just don't want to write about the same old kind of thing. I, I feel like the sky's the limit, and um, you know, not everything is going to connect. But um, but I I, I I certainly don't feel like I'm limited by a certain style and uh, of music. That that's that's what I have to do is kind of fit it into that. I, I don't feel like that. I, I I feel like I'm going to push those boundaries.
0: There are John Bush's comments. You edit an interview and you realize that you're fumbling for words while you're talking to someone. I meant to say this is the kiss John Bush's ass part of the show, not kiss John Bush part of the show. Definitely not what I meant, so there you go. Anyway, let's get on to Joey Vera's comments on chemical euphoria. Yeah, what I mentioned before about them wanting to switch things up. He's going to address that right off the bat. (laughs)
2: Well, uh, again, that was another period of time. Uh, I actually kind of liked the song. I, I used to like the song. I'm just pretty sick of playing it at this point. I hate to say it, but we play it so much, but, um, again, it was, uh, you know, it's an interesting song arrangement wise and everything. I believe it was another one written by myself. Um, but, um, I think maybe Pritchard contributed something in there too. But um um that was a song that we were writing during this period I was telling you about with a with the songwriter that was um that was uh thrown up thrown onto us from the company. I believe actually the song was already written uh when we went into pre production. I mean so we go into this pre production studio with with this guy and then this one particular song, Chemical Euphoria, he, he starts to say, um, I have an idea for the arrangement for that song. So he, he went home and he made a demo of it or something. And then he came back and played it for us. And we just thought it was like horrible. <laughs> and so he said, well, look, and it was the chorus section that he was particularly changing. And so, you know, you gotta understand—we're we're just young punks. We're at this point, we're just completely fed up with the business. We're mm-hmm. just like, you know, fuck our label, fuck, you know, fuck everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, how dare you come in here and tell us how to write music? You know, <laughs> um, we weren't so open-minded back then. Um, right. But he, in particular, he was trying to change the chorus section. So he made this chorus checks and change. He made the change and we just thought it was terrible. And he said, look, all right, well do, how about trying another simplified version of it? So he was basically prodding us. And I know, now I know, understand years later why he was doing that. So, you know, he prodded us and prodded us. And then we came up with a version of his change. And that version is actually the chorus to chemical euphoria. So, you know, it was something that came out, came about through him, you know, sort of forcing us to do it out of more out of like, you know, look, let, let's just try to work together, you know, kind of a thing. And so uh, in the end, you know, I think that the, the change, I don't even remember how it used to go to be honest with you. Um, the change was so subtle, but it, we felt like it did make the chorus into something more of a chorus so um we, uh, we that that's the memory I have about that song is that that's the one thing that we we came out of um that whole time out of that whole period of working with him.
0: <clears throat> and I, I could imagine that would be frustrating even no matter how minimal the change was. I mean, it's someone coming from the outside trying to tell you how to play your music and I mean, on on top of that, John mentioned that it was a guy who was part of Little Feet, yeah. who has like a polar opposite of like Armored Saint. I mean, it has that you you guys have no Zydeco or like washboards or anything right. like that going on. Exactly. In the songs that exactly to have to have this guy come in. I mean, you mentioned you know the British influence. You mentioned you know Aerosmith things like that. If Chrysalis, who had I don't know, Michael Shanker at the time brings Shanker in to tell you guys how to play, you know, solos or song structure or whatever. It's that would, it's fucked up, but yeah. at the same time it's someone that, that
2: more would have made sense. you would respect more. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. Not some 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 dude from, from fucking little feet. Come
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 first ten minutes of meeting the guy he he says, he says what he says to us verbatim and John maybe said this to you already, but verbatim he says, and we're talking about, you know, what it is about being successful and how to get there and all that. And we were like, listening to this guy, tell us this stuff. And he goes, it's all about white limos and chicks. And then we just looked at each other and said, oh my God, shoot me now. Right. Yeah. So anyway, that was that was a funny period that we like to laugh about now.
0: Wow. Um, you said that now you understand why he sort of asked you guys to uh, to make the change in the track. Um, obviously you guys went with his change. You said it was your variation. Was that done out of like telling the guy, you know, getting the guy to shut up, or, or you know, in hindsight you're saying you don't remember the original part, but. At the time, do you think, did you feel that that part that you had altered was better than what you guys originally had?
2: Well, you know, it was probably a tough pill to swallow at the time. So I imagine that we said um, we were being open minded enough to tell ourselves, look, let's just live with it for a little while. If we still hate it by the time we're getting ready to go actually go into the studio, we'll go back to the original version. So I believe that was the state of mind and the philosophy. So as the more we played it and the more we lived with it, the more we decided, okay, this is better.
0: Moving on to 1991's Symbol of Salvation. Now this is going to be the only album where we discuss three tracks. For a lot of people around my age, the MTV generation per se... Um, Well, I'm speaking for myself. I've always known of who Armored Saint was. Uh, I remember seeing the album covers. I remember seeing them in magazines and everything. But I had never really heard Armored Saint until MTV's Headbangers Ball started playing Symbol of Salvation, or I should say Reign of Fire. Uh, I remember hearing that track and going, holy shit, what is this? It really you know it really captivated me from the start from you know just the chugging guitars to the drums to everything the chorus you know obviously again another staple in their live performance and i remember them releasing the video for last train home and saying all right that's it i need to buy this this album and for those that lived in the area where i lived uh, in North Central New Jersey, there used to be a a flea market. At least when I lived there, called the Chester Flea Market. The Chester Flea Market had a CD and cassette stand, and a lot of Sundays I would drive up to just buy different things that I'd seen on TV or heard on the radio because you could get it for dirt cheap there. And lo and behold, I bought Symbol of Salvation there, and I've never regretted it. I mean, I love this album beginning to end. So when I was given the opportunity to put this show together, do this episode, it was sort of a fine line of, okay, I need to be polite. I need to be courteous. I need to be able to appreciate the fact that they're giving me some of their time to talk about all these great songs and all of these great albums. Um, I went back and revisited all of their work after, getting Symbol of Salvation, and I've been a fan and purchased every new album since, uh, essentially either on the day it's come out or, or shortly thereafter. And again, they're they're spending this time with me on the phone, and I'm very grateful that they've done so. At the same time, I wanted to ask more about Symbol of Salvation. So there you go. That's the album that uh, that captivated me and really got me into loving the band, and I know for a lot of other people my age, like I said, that I've spoken to, it's the same deal, and that's probably, I don't know if it hooked people on jumping over to Anthrax as well, but I know a lot of people that have said to me, Symbol of Salvation was the first really eye-opening moment for them with regards to John Bush, and it made them even more eager to check out what he was going to do and in anthrax so there you go enough of me blabbering and let's jump on into rain of fire
1: well it it was the first track on the record it was super powerful we made a video for it which we filmed at the country club in los angeles which we used to do a bunch of shows back in the day it was a great venue um and we ended up filming it there. The um, guy who directed was a good buddy of ours. He actually directed both that and Last Train Home. Uh, his name was John Cornarens. And John got his start back in the early days of Metal Blade and was f- friends with the guys in Metallica. I mean, he did from way back in the day. Um, that makes him sound old. And he's a little old. <laughs> I bust his balls about it. Uh, he spelled his name K O R N A R E N S. And he directed both those videos. And, and Rain was cool. And we put in those. Hieronymus bosch kind of photo uh paintings in in between the, the the um uh some of the live footage and it was cool because we also did it in black and white which i thought looked awesome at the time um rain was a song that was kind of i think dave you know he had a lot of kind of crazy like sexual fetishes i think Times and, and he, you would want to try to incorporate those into tunes periodically. and I think he was going into like the Witches of Eastwick, he's like, Let's write a song about that. and I was like, All right, so um, he, the, 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 you know, that the, the music of that song is just so powerful and heavy and you know, grinding and, and just the riff is, is awesome. And um, You know, the chorus is huge, it's big, some of the lyrics are a little silly. Um, looking back, um, but you know that was the kind of premise of it. Just kind of like kind of sexual, uh, kind of disturbed, uh, um, kind of wicked thing. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's the best way for me to kind of describe it. It was just inspired by you know maybe um, being in this kind of. Um, you know, setting where you're, you're like have a couple of different women around you, and you're you're in a, a, kind of a uh, dark setting. I don't know. So I, ra- I ran with that, and like I said, maybe not one of my most proudest moments lyrically, but the song itself is uh, certainly an awesome tune and is a fan favorite, and um, it's a winner every time we play. And um, it's kind of one of those songs that like rain, of a- it's like March of the Saint, and can you that we just we haven't ever taken out of the set since it, since we've started playing it. Um, maybe one day we will, but it's, it just always seems to work. Um, really big, like I said, chorus, and people love singing it. Um, and it started off Symbol of Salvation, and it, it started off it you know, in a great sense because it was just such a powerful song. So it really got the ball rolling on that record.
0: Okay, and you mentioned... Obviously, that um, Raising Fear, you guys recorded it in, in two parts. Given everything that was going on with Dave, the actual recording process behind Symbol of Salvation, did you guys have to break that up, or, or did you guys go in and just record that all at once, once you brought Jeff into the fold and sort of, you know, David passed away? Well, the
1: pro- the writing process was over a long period of time, probably began around the summer of 1988 and then it obviously went up until we recorded because the truth always hurts was actually a song that was written with phil and jeff um but um it, it was just a long process of writing and there was a lot of different songs that we wrote in that time and obviously the, the best ones were the ones we felt like should have gone out simple and that's what we did but um uh, Rain was written by Dave and um, Prime, you know, I think we, you know, it was, we all obviously took part in the arrangement of it all but I think the riffs were mostly Dave um, and um, it was just during that part you know we at that time when we got dropped from Chrysalis we knew we wanted to be back to be a, a two piece band so we brought Jeff back and again I think Jeff's first show that we did was at the Country Club where's we filmed that video and it was actually ironically enough we did two nights there, Friday and Saturday, and the support act was Fate's Warning. This was prior to Joey in the band. Um, it was a great gig. Both shows were sold out. It was the shows were awesome, and um, and it was you know our kind of reintroduction to being a two piece band. And those were just for shows, and they were just great. And we did play some new songs. I don't think we had Rain of Fire actually written at that point yet, um, but that was the beginning of the writing process and. Um, and we just kind of hunkered in at a studio that we found in uh, a place called Vernon, which is, I think it still exists. It's a rehearsal studio and a lot of bands were rehearsed there and it was a lockout place. And we would just go there and, and start making our four track demos, which were actually a four track machine at that point. And, um, really kind of tried to make these awesome, elaborate sounding demos even then. And, um, we would spend a lot of time in the rehearsal setting and, um, just hang out and, and write songs and, um, and I think we were writing a lot of different type of songs and that's why symbol is pretty diverse and even the songs that ended up on Nod of the Old School that were probably not as good but still some of them were a little different and creative, you know, we, we wanted to release those, those songs, that's why we put out that record and a lot of those were demos that, you know, Dave had uh, played on, most of them were uh, on that particular album. So, Uh, We probably wrote about 25 songs in that time. And um, like I said, the best ones ended up on cymbal. But, um, you know, Reign of Fire, it was just a signature Dave riff.
0: Okay, let's jump on over into Joey Vera's comments here for Reign of Fire. Obviously, for those that aren't aware of what transpired within the band, uh, Dave Pritchard did pass away. And there was a shift from the main composing of the music with the band from being sort of a Dave and Joey Vera tandem. And again, I'm not saying that he writes absolutely everything, but he does write a good majority of the stuff, and that transpired once they've passed away. So hearing John talk about, you know, the sort of the things that were very synonymous with Dave and whatnot, and you're going to hear Joey talk about things along those lines as well, and you've heard it earlier on in this episode, um, but you're going to hear more of a shift in that moving forward. So uh, here we go. This is Joey Vera's comments on Rain of Fire. Rain of Fire.
2: Um, I believe that was one of the first songs we wrote after getting dropped from Chrysalis. And uh, we went into a mode of massive woodshedding, writing new material in the hopes of getting a new record deal. So, um, uh, Rain of Fire was a Dave Pritchard um, composition, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, that was, I think, we had fun writing that one together and arranging it. you know, back in these days, we're, the way that we wrote music was—it's um, not really like the way we write it anymore. It was really the old school way of just someone has a riff, and then you show everybody the riff, and you play the riff over and over and over, and you don't really have a song, but you have a riff, and then right. some. You know, and this was still during that time when um, it was starting to change a little bit during this time because. Uh, Dave and myself had acquired four tracks and, um, and we got pretty good at learning how to program drum machines and so forth. So the actual songwriting started to develop more into, um, once in a, once in a while, we would come in with a song that was almost fully written, um, solo sections, you know, everything in it. Um, and, um, but for the most part, we still did things in a riff sense where, you know, I have a riff. And I believe that Rain of Fire was another one of those songs where it was like it was something we worked on together as a group. And even though most of the music and parts came from Dave, but we as a group worked to work the parts out together and actually arranged the song and maybe altered riffs to make it fit, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I remember being very excited about that song being finished because we, we were you know we were starting a new chapter and we didn't know where we were going or anything so it was a it was one of the it was an exciting time
0: did you feel more or less pressure working on it without a label behind you
2: well certainly we had some pressure because you know there was an unknown in front of us and the unknown was how long are we going to be without a label uh, but uh but, there was a sense of um there was a big weight kind of off our you know off our backs we 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 enjoyed changing the 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 business dynamic that we were in um I believe we were still working with um management at the time it wasn 't q prime, but it was some some friends and different people that were helping us out that still believed in us and they were helping us to you know get our music heard and get a deal so we had people on our side still so it, was, it wasn't so wasn't uh, uh it didn't get bad it got bad a little bit later but it wasn't it wasn't bad in the beginning we were uh, excited and you know excited to be writing the music and a handful of songs came out of the, those first sessions most of which are on symbol.
0: how far into the uh process did metal blade come along
2: well, uh, you mean come back to us, because...
0: They come back to you, is, 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 yes, is uh,
2: um, a Yeah, well, they first came back to us shortly after we got dropped. Um, that's when we put out um, Saints Will Conquer, and we did it as a one-off through Metal Blade, um, meaning that Brian Slagle said, look, um, yeah, I want you guys to get a deal, but I still love you guys, and I want to work with you. Um, let me, you know, Woody, let's let's put out. You have this recording from the Hell on Wheels tour. Let's just put this out as an EP, and and I'll help you. But and if you get a, a record deal, you guys still do your thing. i you know, you have my you got my blessing, but you know, let's just do this. You know, so Brian has always been there for us, <laughs> um, and so but I think what you're referring to is when did they come back to us about basically making symbol of salvation and that, that was a long right. two year period from the time that we started from, let's say we wrote um reign of fire up until the point that Dave Pritchard passed away. It was about a two year period. And during that two year period, we had written something like 24 songs or something like that. And, um, it was at that point where we couldn't get a deal. We got huh. serviced by a few labels um, Polygram was one of them, and um people were taking us to dinner um Electra was interested they you know we had gone to dinners and stuff but no one was making any offers they I guess they couldn't get the funding or you know, but the A&R guys that worked there liked us and they wanted to help us and get us a deal, but it it just never came to fruition. So we did showcases just, you know, and then Dave got sick and it was just, then it got dark and it got hard and it got depressing and and then it got really bad. And then we got the worst, the worst happened. You know, we lost our Dave, we lost our friend and, you know, main guitar player, songwriter, you know, it was just, that was, that was the bottom, you know, so, um, it was at that point where we, we just, we put Armored Stain on hold for like three or four months. Just, you know, it was just, we were in mourning, you know? Um, but it was during that time that Brian came back to us and said, look, you know, um, don't let all these songs go, go, don't let it all go out in vain. Like, don't, you know, don't, don't give up. I, I, you guys have, you guys have two albums worth of material here. You know, like let's, let's do something. Let's, let me make, you know, here, let's make this happen. So, um, it was, it was at that point, I think it was 91, 91 um, where, uh, where Brian came back to us and said, uh, let's make this happen. And it, like I said, at that point, and it's not to say that we didn't have anything else going on, because we could have, you know, pulled up our bootstraps and, you know, got a replacement for Dave and then keep going with the whole showcase thing and try to get a record deal. We could have done that, but it just didn't feel right. You know, it, 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 felt, it felt right um, answering Brian's call, you know, because we started with Brian. It felt more like home. So it just was right.
0: So we did it. I mean, obviously that makes sense given also all all the the stuff you guys went through with with Chrysalis. So from a fan standpoint, trying to imagine what um, Symbol of Salvation would have sounded like, had it have gone to another label who maybe would have wanted to make it more polished or, you know, take some of the stuff in a different direction. It just never would have sounded the same.
2: Exactly. And, um, and we knew that too. Um, You know, we knew at that point that we just, we still needed to make, we just, you know, we're stubborn, stubborn bastards, I guess. We just needed to make our own music. You know, we just needed, we just needed to do our thing. And, you know, going with another major label, at that point, you know, looking back, it, it started to, it started to look like that. That just sounds awful. You know, like this big corporate thing. And, you know, are we ready for that? Or or is that what we're going to do? You know? So it was more like, you know, going with metal blade, it was like, okay, well, we're going to have, we're going to have artistic freedom here. We're going to be able to do what we want. And, um, you know, I mean, we certainly, you know, we, uh, you know, Brian is very close to us, and he had, he has, or at least then he had a lot to say about our, about us, and about our direction and our, the way we're perceived and our music, and 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 he he loved what we did, but he was a believer in us, and so he, he had strong opinions about certain things, and we had to we had to listen to him, you know, because he we, he was looking out for us. But he—he wasn't like he was trying to change us. He, he would never do that. But, you know, he was someone we could work with that we actually respected.
0: Yeah, I mean, he sounds like someone who... Obviously, he had a vested interest because it's his label. Yeah. But at the same time, from what you're describing, it's someone who cared about the music enough to, you know, w- want to put the album out and want to make sure that, you know, the the material found a home as opposed to some dude in a boardroom with a cigar and, yeah. and a suit and wanting to try to get you guys to write, you know, the, uh, yeah. the top 10 hit.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Here's a little deeper cut per se, but again, this album is so popular amongst the fans of the band that those of you that know symbol of salvation, this really isn't that deep of a cut. It's track number two off of the album it is Dropping Like Flies is a track that I've always loved and it's funny because when I pitched the idea personally to John Bush about doing this I said, so you'd have no problem talking about Dropping Like Flies and he's like, nope, I love that song so <laughs> I know a lot of other people do too so let's check out John Bush's comments on Dropping Like Flies coming off of Symbol of Salvation by Edward Saint
1: Dropping might have been might have been the second song that we recorded uh, or wrote. I think Hanging Judge was the first one, and then dropping like flies, I think was the second one. um it has this kind of groove to it, very armored saint, um, but kind of you know mid tempo um, big chorus. I remember we were. <laughs> We were trying to seek out a record deal, and we had all these songs demoed, and we had a meeting with this guy, and I, he, his name will remain nameless, um, because I think he's a pretty big guy in the music industry still, so I don't want to dog him. But um, he, he came to listen to some of our songs, and then he was he was bagging on Dropping Like Flies. Dropping Like Flies, what does that mean? What does that mean? I was like, what do you mean, what does that mean? That's like a, that's like a famous phrase, you know? They're dropping like flies. Everybody's, you know... Falling by the wayside. He never heard that. And I was, I was stunned that he didn't even know what that phrase was. I was like, what? Wow. Dude, read some books or something. But um, in any case, I was uh, very offended at, the, uh, at that point and still to this day am, as you can tell. And, um, and it's a good song. You know, we, we periodically bring, bring that song into the live setting. Um, people like that song a lot. Um, I don't think it's like the greatest live track. But people do like that song, maybe because it's the second song on the record, so just people are familiar with it. I don't know. Um, it does have a big chorus, very hard to sing. I was singing very high sometimes at that point in my career, and uh, I have to make some adjustments for it live. Um. But it, is, you know, has some cool riffs, especially the very Dave again. He wrote that. Um, the, those riffs are signature Dave Pritchard licks, um, you know, things like that. You know, he just and the way he played and the, the riffs he wrote. He, he just, he, I don't know, that, that was very much his style. And, and that song, kind of like Rain of Fire, is 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 very Dave Pritchard.
0: All right, let's jump on over to Joey Vera and see what his recollection is of the track, Dropping Like Flies.
2: Yeah, that was another one I'm sure John wrote to you about. Um, it, it's, it's kind of, it's, I think it's skewed towards um, a lot something that was going on in the, in the music business um, at the time that we wrote the song, which I believe was also another early song. Um, uh, right around the Reign of Fire days, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess eighty nine and um, eighty eight, eighty nine. Um, people at labels were they were cleaning house. They I don't know what was going on with the labels, but they had spent so much money. I think in the early part of the eighties. It was ridiculous how much money they were giving bands and spending on records and producers. It was just, it's like unheard of. It's astronomical. And uh, everybody was getting all the money. Um, I mean, even Armored Saint, our first record, was, I can't believe how much money they spent on making that record. It's just, it's just beyond me. We'll never recoup from it. Let me put it that way. Ever. <laughs> okay. It'll never get recouped. Um, and I think that that ca- caught up with the business and so people were losing their jobs left and right, A cleaned house cut staff like I don't know, 70, 70% in some places, some cases so the Red Like Flies was written in response to that um, and uh, you know, we I don't know, I don't know John's exact perspective on it, but we were kind of laughing at all of them, you know, about just poking fun at the whole situation, but, um, but um, I remember liking writing that song because um, I, that was uh another way for us to, uh, you know, we think we began to exploit this rhythm section thing that, that Gonzo and I have um, sort of developed and done, and we we have repeated it in senses, but there's a certain funky se- there's a funkiness about parts of the way that we interpret parts. And so the, right. him and I combined with the chord structures and some of the riffs that Dave was writing, it started to make something sort of interesting, at least to our ears. And so, um, dropping like flies is another, another aspect of that. And, um, so, um, I remember having fun writing that cause it was, um, uh, it again, uh, we're writing in a, in a place of like a like a uh, an animal that feels threatened and it's in the corner so right. there's fear in us but it's there's also like the high sense of danger <laughs> uh because you don't know um you know we we don't know what's happening we don't we don't have a label we're we're on our own again there's a sense of freedom but at the same time there's a sense of like we are, you know, we're, we could be dangerous. We want to, we want to challenge ourselves and make really fierce music or music that's challenging. And, um, but also something that we like listening to. So, um, we're writing from a place of anger, you know, where we're still, you know, we're still have this bad taste in our mouth with the industry. And, um, so, you know, I think lyrically and musically, it was, again, this is where our way of expressing ourselves at this time.
0: It goes to show how much emotion goes into not only how you interpret music uh, when you hear it, you know, when you hear a, an album or whatever, but also when when you're writing something, how much different emotions go into how you ultimately compose something and how it all comes together. And As you're saying, you know, the the anxiousness, the the feeling of the unknown or at the same time, you know almost letting it all fly and just going for it, you know, at the same time. Those are all different connections that you guys are, are coming at from a from an emotional standpoint to, to help you get this stuff out.
2: Yeah. It's it's interesting to note that um you know, at the time, you're living it. So, um, it's not, this is certainly something that we sat around and talked about, you know, like, I'm feeling angry and I'm feeling insecure and I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling sarcastic, you know, let's do this. It. It's, it's, it's not a discussion that we're making. So, um, right. um, but it, looking back in hindsight, you know, I think doing interviews over such a long period of time and a lot of fans ask us, Pretty deep questions, you know, about like why, why, you know, why this, why that, why, you know, how come, how come this happened, how come that? <laughs> and uh, and for the longest time, we're just we our answers are like, I don't know, I don't know, I I don't know. We're just living it, and it's happening, and we're hurt. We're jumping the hurdles. That's all we know. We're we're maneuvering around all this stuff. But the older you get, after being asked so many times, you really start to right well, well i'm going to dissect this why why did this happen why what were the reasons you know and so um it this is certainly uh what what i'm describing to you and what we're talking about is is not something i've known all along it's something that's come up fairly recently you know um and uh it is interesting to note that you know that uh there there's reasons for everything i suppose there's <laughs> the reason or at least maybe they're partial reasons. I mean may, John might give you a whole different perspective. I and mean, talk to Gonville, he'll give you a different perspective and Phil and Jeff. Um, but um and, and even even Brian will have different perspective on it. But I think it's pretty fair to say that um you know, the, what I'm describing is is at least accurate in my mind. <laughs>
0: Well, it makes sense. I mean, as you're saying with all the different components, everyone's going to come at it uh, from a different way and, and having different memories as to, you know, how sort of their ingredients went into making the song. Yeah. All right, so this is the last track off of Symbol of Salvation that we're going to discuss. Obviously, another big hit for them on MTV. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the video. Uh, this is Last Train Home. Let's check out John Bush's comments on this song. Well,
1: Last Train at Home is, uh, is a great song. Um, Jeff actually wrote the bulk of that song. He definitely had the... No, 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 you know, the, the verse parts. Um, right. And um, we thought it sounded cool and, and, and dreamy. And um, it certainly was an opera... It just sounded very Armored Saint. And... Um, you know, we, kind of, we were a band that did like like to write these kind of slow ballad but big uh, epic songs. you know it started from way back and you know it was probably our fascination with stuff like love to love and Victim of Changes and you know those kind of songs and, and we, we wanted to emulate that. so we wrote songs like that even take a turn, isolation, certainly aftermath. Last train home was a continuation of that. Another day was was definitely a song like that. You know, we, we love writing songs that start slow and have these kind of big endings uh, or, you know, kind of grandiose uh, uh, crescendos, if you will. And, um, you know, Lafayette is a great song. You know, it's, you know, it's, a, it's almost like a pop song. Um, it has this kind of beat that almost is, sounds like salsa. If you listen to the, the you know, the, the drum beat, it's, it's almost like a salsa beat, which is cool because, um, you know, i saying this has these latin influences and and i think that you you know you wouldn't think that if you'd hear it but i definitely think that that was kind of the the rhythm behind it especially with uh with joey and, and gonzo you know the bass and the and the drum beat which is cool so that kind of combined with the guitar uh ominous uh verses and then these big open chord chorus parts uh it just it made for a great song lyrically it's you know it's a song about hanging in there when times are tough, you know, and, and, you know, knowing that, you know, the road is long and, you know, the train is long and you're trying to get home, but you, you know, if you stay positive, you'll get there and achieve your goals. And you know, that's the basic premise of that. It, and it is a positive song and um, a big song live. People love it, of course, still to this day. And um, and it's, it's a hopeful song, you know, which is cool. And, um, you know, at that time, it, you know, we also found out about Day's Illness. So I think that we had those kind of feelings and we were working them into um, the songwriting, you know, and, and for certain songs. And Last Train, I think, certainly uh, demonstrates that. You know, we, we you know, the the fate of the band was in, in question and the future, and um, you know, not the fate, but the future of the band, should I say. And um, we, we had to have, um, you know, something that we believed in, you know, we really did. And, um, and, uh, and then the song like last train home kind of, it, you could feel that it's, 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 you know, it, you probably, it's the best, uh, example of, of how we said, Hey, we got to believe in ourselves through this time of being dropped and Dave's illness, that we're still a killer band and writing great songs. And I think last train home is probably the, the, like the, uh, the, the poster child for that feeling of the band at that time. So, um, it's great it's a great song, and um the video was not as great uh you know we tried to like do something and it became you know and when I look back on it, I just laugh because i can't beat myself up too much about it, but you know it was a little too sappy and um you know in this we filmed it out in Paris Lake area, which is like uh, where a lot of people skydive and stuff and there was tra- there was like an old train yard and um, it could have been cool but it it just I don't know, I think we missed the we missed the bullseye on that one but um uh, um I don't really think about the video when I think of that song I think of the song so I try I try to kind of think of uh, remove the video from my mind when I think of it
0: <laughs> Cool I uh, I got you I know Joey has complained in various uh interviews about that one as well <laughs>
1: It was cool because Joey was willing to climb this, like, water tower up with his base on, and he, he did that one part of the video where he's up on the water tower. It's probably pretty dangerous, actually. But um, that looked cool, but, you know, it was it just, you know, I don't know. But in the vi- both of those videos, Rain of Fire and Last Train Home, were played on um, MTV, you know, the Headbangers Ball, a lot, and Rain of Fire was, like, almost like a number one video for a while on on the Headbangers Ball. Or maybe we never quite cracked number one. As a matter of fact, I think we, we were always, we, like a couple weeks in a row we were number two, and I think we were behind um, Bring the Noise, actually. So um, it was pretty funny. But, um, you know, we did make two videos on that record, which helped the sales of it and, and the awareness of the band. And, um, you know, I love Last Train Home. It's it's a It's a great song.
0: There's a common theme that you're going to hear, with Joey's comments that you heard during John's comments in the fact that Jeff Duncan did write this track, or at least the some of the more important parts of this track. Uh, so that just goes to show that they're not the only people that uh, write the songs that Armored Saint puts out. And if anyone wants to diminish the fact or, you know, you've always got fan bases that say, oh, well, this person is better than that person or ever since this person was no longer there, or, blah, 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 whatever. Uh, It goes to show the importance of Jeff Duncan in Armored Saint because this is one of their biggest songs and he had a big hand in writing it. So uh let's talk to Joey Vera about Last Train Home and, yeah, that pesky water tower uh, that's featured... In the video.
2: Last train home. That was a Jeff Duncan penned tune. And when we were uh when we came back from the Raising Fear tour Oh, I'm trying to remember the timeline on this. Maybe it was later. We were writing as a four piece and then at some point maybe it was a nine we did a tour with King diamond. It was, I guess it was around the time of saints will conquer coming out, being released and, uh, something like that. Um, we, we, had, we had been talking about becoming a five piece again for a long time, actually, but we never really did anything about it. And it wasn't until that, that time, um, I'm going to say 88 or 89 where we, started to you know hold that notion closer and make a decision to do it and um we became friends with jeff through uh, his band odin they played with us a couple times and we knew each other from around town had we had a lot of the same friends and um we really liked him as a person and as a player he was great he has a he's a blues based player and we it fit in with what we were doing um You know, he brought um, this, uh, you know, he just brought, he brought another flavor to us that we felt like benefited us. And so um, he came into the group to do the tour with us. And um, we also did some songwriting with him for a short period of time. Um, And he brought us this, the main part to, to last train home. And so, this was another tune where he had a couple of parts and the rest of us sort of armored sanctized it. <laughs> and, um, so that was, a uh, that was another cool, uh, cool memory of how that came about. It, again, it was, you know, Hey, I got these two parts, you know, so we, he basically was the main riff verse part and the B section and chorus. So, um, uh, we, got together and and worked it out, Gonzo and I came up with a rhythm for the verse sections. And it's almost like a Calypso sort of a thing. Uh, Again, again, we're beginning to exploit, you know, genre bending things within our our version of heavy metal. You know, not a lot of bands were doing that. I don't think. And so, (laughs) Right. We were you know again, this is another song where we put it all together as a group in one room um and uh the thing it came out uh really good and um and uh the lyrics are really cool too um the lyrics are really cool on that
0: um do you have any thoughts about climbing things with a bass on your back? <laughs>
2: Making the video, yeah, yeah, that video's kind of weak. Um, <laughs> he, I think we were—I don't know—I think it was a little bit confused. We were trying to do something that I don't know that was going to be palatable, maybe. Um, when we, done, we should have just done—we should—we this was coming off of the video for "Rain of Fire," which I thought was great, and "Last Train Home." I guess in hindsight, we should have just done maybe more of the same or something a little darker. But um, um, you know, we we had to work with budget confines and so and so forth. But you know, whatever. It's just a performance video, basically in a train field. There's nothing too spectacular going on there. But um, you know, it, it's all right. And 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 I shouldn't have done that. Um, climbed on that thing because when I got up to the top I was on the top of this old water tower it's probably like I don't know 80 feet high or something it's pretty, it's pretty high up there um, when I got to the top the top was like it was made out of wood so the top of it right. had been corroded by weather and I could have easily like if I stepped the wrong way or if I would have jumped or hopped or something or put too much weight on it, I would have gone all the way through that thing down to the middle, down the center of it. And I probably would have killed myself. Pretty stupid actually. But you know, it's for art. It's for art's sake.
0: (laughs) When did that thought on you when you got up there or after you were finally down?
2: Well, when I, when I was up there, I saw it and I said, um, Let's roll this and do only one take, and then I'm out of here. So,
0: I did that. All right, so at this point in the band's career, as a lot of you know, uh, John Bush enters Anthrax, Joey Vera starts to work with various different projects, uh, Fate's Warning, uh, his solo stuff, and he goes on to work with Jack Frost and Seven Witches, And there's some interesting stuff that when we get to Joey's part of this next track uh, that he's going to reveal about uh, writing these tracks. And, uh, you know, there was a nine-year gap between when Symbol of Salvation came out and uh, 2000's Revelation. So this is, to me, this is some really cool stuff hearing them discuss a little bit about what took place and sort of what led them to get back together and play again and how some of this stuff was maybe set aside for 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 Armored Saint as opposed to some of these other projects that I mentioned. So uh, let's hear John Bush's part of uh, this track. This track is actually, after me, The Flood, and how a pause in anthrax actually led to all of this happening
1: after me the flood yeah killer song uh um, powerful slow very armored saint um uh just classic sounding armored saint song um long has that kind of down down down, at the end of the song where it kind of uh, you know slows down and we do that even more live where are to the point where we're almost barely playing it at the end this sounds awesome! Super powerful part live. Um, I remember we had just wrote a couple demo songs. That was, you know, again, I was still in Anthrax, but the guys decided uh, Charlie and Scott they were going to do a, a SOD record. So I guess I was going, well, I, I got to do something, or I wasn't like, going to be bored sitting around. And um, and that's I had a conversation with Joey, and he goes, "Well, I have some ideas. You want to work on some stuff?" I don't think we immediately thought we we're going to make an our Saint record. I thought we just. I think we just wanted to write some songs together because we probably miss one another. And um, and after me, the flood was I think either the first or second song that we wrote. And I remember playing it for Paul Crook on the bus. Paul was in Anthrax at the time, playing with us, and he was like, "Wow, that's dude, that's an amazing song." And I was like, "Yeah, I know, it's really cool. Um, it has this cool chorus to it because it's just super simple, you know." After me. Comes a flood down. After me, I like it. It's just like uh, uh, the t- the title space. The title space. Um, it was cool. And then at the end of uh, the second chorus, and Jeff comes in with, my own, like a Michael Schenker lick in between the choruses. Very uh, inspired by UFO and that type of style of Scorpions. Um, you know, it, it's a great song. Uh, long, a little bit long, probably like six minutes, I think. Um, but uh, it, was a, it was a great um, kind of song to show the style of how that record was going to kind of play out. And, um, you know, it's also a good song live. You know, it doesn't quite have the huge giant rain of fire impact, but it, it definitely is a, is a fan favorite as well.
0: And you describing the ending of the song there, you guys were um, predating all the metalcore bands and their breakdowns.
1: And their breakdown?
0: Yeah, the the typical breakdown that they have in the middle of, of a song instead of a solo.
1: Oh. Yeah, because it doesn't really have like a lead per se, actually. It does at the end of the song, because Phil does a lead Uh, you know, over the last, uh, you know, the final riff. Uh, But in the middle of the song, that's not really a a lead. It's just a lick. Um, um, It's cool. And then just the wallop part. You know, it just sounds vintage armored saint.
0: So the music nerd in me absolutely loves (laughs) this next part with Joey Vera talking about how he had written this track and, and how it ended up being an Armored saint song. So I sort of alluded to this before jumping into uh, John Bush's discussion. I don't want to give too much more away. Let's check out Joey Vera's comments on After Me, The Flood.
2: That was a song that I wrote um, during our basically breakup. Um, I had been doing some writing. Um, I did a little bit of work with this band called seven witches and, um, okay. And, uh, I was working with Jack Frost, the main guitar player that band and, and he asked me to do some writing and I, I wrote some things for his band and I wrote, you know, we were, collaborated on a few things and, um, and, in and in that writing, you know, I haven't been really been writing that like heavy metal, like in a long time. Cause I, I was, I just wasn't in Armored Saint and I, then I joined Fate's uh, Fate's warning in 96. So my, I just kind of went a different direction, but in the late nineties, I began writing again, um, with seven witches. And so I had a handful of things that I didn't feel like I wanted to give him. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, after me was one of them. And so I had made a demo of after me, um, and I gave it to John when we, John was uh, kind of in a break between Anthrax and uh, Charlie and Scott had gone off to do an uh, SOD tour and record. And so they had like a couple of years downtime and John was like, you know, I'm, I'm getting bored. W- you know, we, maybe we should write some music for like no other reason than just to, you know, I'm bored. So I said, oh, I got some, I got some riffs, you know, so I sent him this, after me thing and i believe that was the first thing i sent him to be honest with you and he was like this is fucking awesome so he he came over and we we demoed it and at that point we said this is really cool let's let's write some more stuff and let's maybe maybe we could do another armored saint record in this down period so that's what we did that was the start of uh, Revelation
0: with the story that you told with Seven Witches, was it in the back of your mind of you thinking, you know what, if if we ever get Armored Saint back together again, I want this for Armored Saint and not for Seven Witches?
2: Um, maybe, yeah. Yeah, because uh, I think maybe at that point I was trying to see, you know, at some point in the future I would like to write with with the Armored Saint guys and, and I'm going to put some of these things away in, in the event that that happens. And, uh, that was one of them. Um, I believe, um, head on, which is, which didn't appear later until later. Um, and La Raza head on was also one of those songs. Um, so yeah, I, I started to, squirrel away riffs for a later possible date
0: John Bush is no stranger to being part of a motion picture soundtrack after all while in Anthrax he was in the Tales from the Crypt or I should say Anthrax had a song included in the Tales from the Crypt Bordello of Blood movie they did the title track to the movie they did Bordello of Blood and a really cool sort of deep track by Anthrax there check it out And this next song, The Pillar, actually has to do with them being asked to be part of another soundtrack. So let's check out John Bush's comments on that specific movie and how this sort of all came about and the lyrical content about The Pillar.
1: The Pillar, yeah. The Pillar was actually written it might've been one of the last songs. I don't think it was written during the symbol of salvation time, but it was, I can't remember now, but it was like definitely a leftover song. Um, we wrote it because, well, yeah, maybe it was during that time because we wrote it, uh, well, you know what we, we were. Actually, I think we wrote it when we were going to be in the Hellraiser movie. We got offered to be in the Hellraiser movie, Hellraiser Three, um, which is funny because I was at the record store the other day and I saw a copy of that movie in like the cutout bin for movies. And I was laughing. Um, you know, we ended up getting in that movie, which was a really cool experience. Um, um, and then we thought, okay, well, we'll write a song for the soundtrack if we're going to be in it. And we wrote that. We wrote the pillar. Um, so, a cool. I love the, the music in that song. I think it's really heavy, and you know, sounds like again vintage Armored Saint, especially that riff. Um, it's it's just a great riff, a very Joey Vera. Um, and um, but then in the end, they didn't choose it to be in the movie, which we were bummed about. So then we had it. So we're like, well, let's put it on Revelation. But I think we were we were disappointed because we wrote it for that purpose to be in um, in that movie and then um, it got mixed to be in the movie I don't know why I don't really remember actually back then as to why it it didn't make it but um, or make the soundtrack but we but we didn't but we did think the song was killer and um, you know it had this kind of we wrote I mean the lyrics are a little you know, for me and when I look back I think they're a little silly, but but they were based in, kind of based around like Pinhead and, and Hellraiser. So I I kind of I wrote the lyrics with you know, not exactly about that, but um using
0: that as inspiration. So even after you put it on Revelation you didn't touch any of the lyrics up to sort of stray from that, uh type of imagery, like the Pinhead stuff? Not really. I mean, I didn't, you know, it wasn't
1: like I was saying, Pinhead! And it wasn't, yeah, I wasn't using it by name or anything. They just had this kind of dark tone to it. Um, it you know, it, it, if you listen to them and then you think Hellraiser, you think, okay, well, that would work perfect. You would see the connection. But, uh, you know, it was one of those songs Was it was what it was, and we, we liked it, so we, we kept it.
0: Another one of those segments here where Joey and John are sort of going to follow up their stories with some common themes here. Uh, Joey's going to talk a little bit about how this song came about as well and the whole tie-in with the Hellraiser movie and whatnot. So here we go. Joey Vera's comments on The Pillar.
2: The Pillar. That song is... uh, That's an old song from it's actually a song that I was writing. I wrote during the Pritchard sections that never materialized. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, it was a demo that I had that we just never, it never turned into anything. And I brought it back out during the, the, um, symbol of salvation time. Um, because, um, We were hit up by, when we did the, um, uh, we we were asked by the Hellraiser production movie team to be a part of the movie, and so after we agreed to do that, we have a small part in the movie, and we're like a bar band or whatever, but they they also wanted us to write, they wanted us to contribute a song for the ending credits. They said, you know, it would be great to have you guys write something that's not on Symbol of Salvation, but that we can use as the ending credits. So I went out and I pulled out this riff and I said, Oh, this, this is really heavy riff. I think it's cool. Blah, blah, blah. So I demoed it. I gave it to John. John wrote lyrics for it. And the the pillar is basically about that's in the, the Hellraiser movies. Um, and in that particular movie, there's a, there's a pillar in it where, I don't know, Tinhead is stored, his soul is stuck inside it or something. (laughs) Um, So that was, that's where the pillar came from. But the production, the movie people did set it. I don't know. The, the main guy liked it, but the higher ups didn't like it. They wanted something that was more commercial or from someone else. I don't know what the reason was, but so it got mixed. So we had this, basically this four track version of the pillar that just sat on the shelves until we came to do Revelation, in which case I thought we should pull it out. And we re- re- rearranged it slightly, but um, mostly just in the, the solo sections, a little bit different. But um, um, So we, I reworked it, and then uh, I thought it would be a good addition for uh, the new batch of songs for uh, Revelation.
0: Okay, so a little history at this point in time. Uh, John Bush goes back to Anthrax after everything is done with uh, Revelation and the S.O.D. sort of debacle there. (laughs) Uh, They put out We've Come For You All, the reunion with Dan Spitz and um, Joey Belladonna take place, and there's a bunch of other stuff that happens here and there. Joey actually becomes a temporary member of anthrax when joe uh, joe yeah frank bello actually leaves to perform with helmet for about a year and then when he comes back uh there's all this other stuff that goes down john does the initial big four stuff which people sort of forget but he was helping the band out at that point in time um then sort of the smoke settles Armored Saint gets back together again, and I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here. I'm not giving you the exact ins and outs. Um, I have interviewed both a bunch of times for uh, La Raza, which is what we're going to talk about next. I talked to John when this came out for the first time, if I'm not mistaken, was back in 2010. And uh, the first track that we're going to talk about is, again, maybe one of the deeper cuts of... On the album, which is the title track, which is always something that I have really, really enjoyed, and I wanted to ask about. So let's hear John Bush's comments on La Raza.
1: I love La Raza. Actually, I think it's a killer uh, song. Um, And um, well, let's see. You know, it was more of experimenting at that time. You know, we we brought in that whole Latin. style to the song. I think Joey said he had this song that kind of sounded a little bit like Mars Volta, a little bit like Santana, Um, you know, like he had this kind of merging of styles that he was trying to to do. And I said, cool, that sounds awesome. I love Mars Volta. And, you know, of course, I've always been a Santana fan. So um, we went for that. And um, we did play that song live a few times. Uh, the the guy who was our drum tech at the time, John Saxon, he was a buddy of ours, and he's an awesome percussionist and pretty good drummer himself. And we would, he was our drum tech, and then we would bring him out in that song, and he would play the percussion in it, and it was really cool. And, um, he did a great job. Um, we didn't play it that many times, but we we did play it a few times, and um, but it's just there's a lot in the song as far as um, sound going. So um, you know, you kind of need that whole breakdown. Um, We had uh, the the theremin that was there, and it sounds awesome, very inspired by, you know, Dazed and Confused, if you will, because that's in that song. And um, the sounds are very um, spacey, and, um, you know, I'm really proud of that song lyrically. You know, I'm writing this song that was kind of talking about, you know, the future of of the planet, of course. Um, I try to do a play on words because uh, those who know what La Raza mean, it's usually like and speaking of the mexican race and it's a term that you know very passionate chicano people use um to uh, symbolize you know the the mexican race um but i took the title and then i kind of used it as a play on words for the human race um hopefully not offending anybody but i figured hey i got some we got Mexicans in this band, so I'm not trying to like just capitalize on this. We we really have you know Latin guys in the band, so um, I felt like I could get away with that a little bit. But I did want to kind of write it in a way where it was a, a little play on words, so that's why the song is kind of about the human race. And um, and you know, I, I my daughter was uh, growing up being a little girl, and that's why I used that line in the song of you know. Um, when I hold my daughter's hand, because you know I, I think of their my kids' future and the earth and you know the environment and and what I feel like we're do, we're not doing best by you know we're, we're trashing it and uh, we and there, I mean I could go on and on about that but I I, I don't want to be too long winded but um, uh, the reality is I am concerned about you know, the fate of the planet and especially as I uh, bring in. Uh, new humans to be the uh, the future generations of it. So um, you know it's it's a deep track. It's a, as far as lyrically, and uh, but at the end it's still optimistic. Uh, you know, I love the ending of that song where I'm singing. You know, basically as the music fades and it's just my voice for the most part. And um, you know the last lines of like, yeah, God. Um, you know, I have to think here. Um, human race, uh, you'll get through this. You always do. And that's my optimistic way of saying, you know, we'll, we'll make, we'll get through it, you know, you no know, matter what happens to, to humanity and um, the planet and, and things of that nature. I, I still feel optimistic that we'll do the right thing as humans, you know, because I, I don't want to be negative. I, you know, at the end, I, I usually look at the glasses half full and, and that's that's more of it so I, I still feel like you know we'll we'll do it as as humans we won't fuck it up completely we'll we'll, we'll realize that you know there's only one planet and you know we, we all got to live on it so let's take care of it so that's my optimistic take um which i think is cool and it it works perfectly into the ending of that song where i'm just singing kind of by myself and um i give that a a, a strong U2 influence. It sounds like something that you would hear on a U2 record and something Bono would do, um, you know, who's one of my favorite singers. Um, yeah.
0: Very cool. Yeah, the the play on words, being someone that understands Spanish, uh, was something that grabbed me right away with that song and how, obviously, how you, you know, uh, played with that and what, what it meant and everything else. So it's cool to hear you describe it.
1: Yeah, I never got any grief from any, you know, uh, 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 <laughs> Mexican friends. They're like, "Why, hey, why are you saying that? You can't say that, especially you. You're all, you know, you're a, you're a white boy." But um, you know, I hope everybody appreciated, you know, my um, respect for it. And um, you know, again, we, I think La Raza was a time when we were really embracing that. You know, we were this Latin Los Angeles band, and we, we rolled with it.
0: Okay, so let's continue discussing the title track, La Raza, with Joey Vera. Again, at this point in time, Joey is really foot deep, not only composing a lot of the music, but also producing the album as well. So uh, let's talk to him about the track La Raza.
2: Oh, that one. Uh, really like that one. Um I'm not ashamed to say that at the time I was listening to, um, I was listening to a lot of, um, the Mars Volta. And so, uh, and you know, I've been, I had been playing in faith warning for quite some time at that time. So I, you know, I was super interested in odd time signatures and also heavy music playing odd time signatures. So, I always think there's, I think there's a way to do it where it still sounds heavy without it sounding proggy, you know? Um, and so, um, that, I don't know, this riff just came up, came to me. It's in five, four and for armored Saint, you know, it's, that's like a stretch, you know, we, we have done some things with a few odd times where signatures are in odd times, but mostly not. And so this one's, pretty challenging for us as a band. But um, uh, I had a lot of fun writing it. And again, I think that if I have to tip my hat, it would be to the, the Mars Volta um, just, I probably got something from them listening to their records. And that was certainly an influence in, in writing that song, including the use of percussion and uh, making it, um, you know, You know, again, maybe even taking some stuff from Santana, which is a band that I grew up listening to, so I was a big Santana fan during the 70s, and so this was my sort of answer to modern music being heavy, but also being able to make it sort of like a Latin, a little bit of a Latin flavor to it. It was fun, really fun, really, really fun to write that, and and I really loved the arrangement.
0: Yeah, I always remember the first time that I listened to it. It seemed so different to anything else that I'd listened to by by the band. And then at the same time, um, obviously being Spanish and knowing what La Raza means, or you know, um, both what it represents to uh, Mexicans and also it means the race. And just hearing, you know, John's play on words with the whole thing. It the song has always been captivating to me because of that. Just all the different ingredients made it like a perfect storm for me. So cool. I,
2: I, good. I'm, I'm glad. I really like that song.
0: Here's a track off of La Raza that ended up being a, a video and I'm sure if Headbangers Ball was in full swing, this would have been played plenty of times. I did catch it, living in Europe, I did catch it on the Scuzz Network which is in the UK and they... Play a lot of hard rock metal uh post hardcore hardcore punk uh pop rock you know it's all rock based it's heavier stuff usually, but they do veer off into doing some of the lighter stuff and I have seen this video on there before, which is always cool so uh let's jump into the lyrical discussion with John Bush about where everything came from when when he started to compose and write the lyrics for the track left hook from right field
1: left hook killer song um you know i love that song kill heavy lyrics as well um i think i was i don't want to talk about any particular people because i don't want to offend anyone but uh, i think the the general idea behind that song is that if for people who don't believe in the same religious uh sex or (laughs) uh whatever (laughs) um religions um it doesn't mean that we're bad or if you're not the biggest religious person period that still doesn't mean that you're you know you should be burning in hell and that you're evil you know that's kind of the general vibe of that song like you know, if you're Muslim, doesn't mean just because you're Christian, you're gonna, you know, you're an infidel. And you're, you're, you know, if you're a Christian and you, you meet someone who's Jewish, they're not, you know, a, uh, lower class human than you are. It's like everybody can respect everybody's beliefs, but there's this kind of condescending, arrogant mentality sometimes with people who are very religious that other people of other religions are less than them, which I find completely baffling I just should everybody should appreciate everybody else's belief system but yet deep down I think the more fundamentalist you get the less you less you're respectful of other people of other religions even though people will say they are I just think that they usually aren't so that was my way of right. busting balls on that I certainly had a lot of uh, uh, antagonistic views probably at that time about that particular topic and still do um, to some degree, I consider myself to be agnostic. Um, that's not to say I don't respect people's religious views. I mean, Gonzo is, uh, you know, a Christian man, and he's very passionate about it. and I have no problem with that, you know. So, um, but you know, I believe the way I kind of do, and that's just kind of where I'm at with it right now. I was raised Catholic, but um, you know, the way I look at life is, you know, this is this is what makes me happy right now, and. Um, but um, the song is powerful. It has that cool breakdown in the middle of it, which is it, we with live when we do that part, we totally break it down all the way down. I tell the band all the way down, and there's, we're barely playing, and I'm, I'm singing super light, and then just the crescendo of that part as it goes into the lead is just awesome. It's just always when we end that song, and there's just always a big. Bah! Um, I don't know. It just always works. It's just a great live song. Um, so um, I'm real proud of that one. It's, it's the, the song that we probably always play from La Raza. Um, you know, Saint always tries to at least play one song off every record. And, um, you know, we, we, if we can only play one, um, that's usually the one from that record.
0: All right. Let's jump over to Joey Vera's comments on the track, Left Hook. From right field. Yeah.
2: um, I don't know where that one came from. (laughs) Um, That was another fun song to write. Um, I think that, uh, I think I began to feel the writing during the writing of La Raza period. um, I began to want to embrace simplicity a lot more. um, And uh, not worry so much about, you know, trying to be clever, you know, with songwriting and, uh, and riffs, you know, um, but more about like, just, you know, write a simple song kind of, you know, um, but, uh, right. At the same time, uh, for me anyway, and I'm giving you songwriting perspectives, maybe more than John, he's giving you lyrical perspectives. Maybe this is a right. good thing, but maybe not, but, uh, um, <laughs> this was a, another way for me to, um, explore, um, variations in harmony. Um, and, uh, so this was probably one of the first, my first efforts in doing that. Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a simple, uh, melody that's happening in the chord progression, but I basically was able to exploit a lot of things moving differently within that to make it sound different. So the bass line, for instance, going against the, uh, chord progressions in the chorus is, um, is to me anyway, it's what moves the melody in the, in the chorus. It's what moves the whole part, but it's really just a simple thing. What's happening (laughs) when you break it down and analyze it. Um, Phil Lynott used to do from Thin Lizzy. He used to do, um, he used right. to do something similar, um, and uh, I think I probably got the idea from from Phil in that. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was a fun song to write for that very reason. You know, um, it's um, it was it was interesting and challenging for me to do to write that.
0: You're saying also it's with a lot of these different tracks, the the challenges you find as a composer or as a musician recording them, but you're also producing a lot of this stuff. Um, do you find it less difficult to be a producer than to actually be the musician behind some of this stuff?
2: Um, well, I don't know. Less difficult. I think it's more difficult. <laughs> um, okay. The difficult thing is being objective. Um, And, um, but it's something that, it's like, uh, it's something that I torture myself with. Um, I think I like the challenge. I think I like to stress out over every little detail. I like to, you know, it's funny because I'm not, I don't really want to be a perfectionist but I want to be right. this far from being a perfectionist. <laughs> um, <laughs> so at some point I have to let go and say, eh, it, it's not perfect. And, and that that's actually a good thing. So um, that's really the hard part for me is just being objective and being able to stand far enough away from something and say, and view it right. objectively rather than, be too emotionally attached inside of it, um, and that 's something i 've been practicing with and trying to do and um, i the a, a big exercise for me was on our last record when hands down, I decided that i didn 't want to see the record all the way to the end with me breathing down the records back, so that 's why I hired um, jay Rustin who 's who's also a friend of mine, but, um, I love his work. And so I decided that it was an exercise for me to hand it to him and say, you mix it. Um, I mean, I, I'm approving it before it goes to before it gets turned in, but I'm not, I don't want to be the one mixing it. I don't want to be in the studio. I don't want to, I don't want, I don't want my interpretation. I want your interpretation of the, of the mixes. And that's what he did, and it was it was really good for me, and I and I I felt comfortable about it, and and I trusted Jay, and I still do. Um, and I think it made it a better record. So um, it's you know this whole thing is always a process, you know, you try different things, and I feel like a mad scientist sometimes. You know, I'm going to do this this time, and next time I'm not going to do that, and I'm going to try this and see what happens, and you know. I don't know. I don't know what's right or wrong. I just, I think the exploration is the, is the best part of it.
0: I mean, you can obviously tell from from album to album, like Revelation has a certain crunch to the guitars. Uh, La Raza has a completely different sound to the drums is what you guys had on the previous yeah. two albums. And as you're saying, Win Hands Down just sounds completely different to every one of the albums that I just mentioned. It's you yeah. guys. But it doesn't sound exactly the same do you ever look back at some of the albums and say shit you know i wish i would have known how to do this at the time or i wish i would have tried this instead
2: yeah sure you know i mean you look the whole thing's a learning process you know like, like i can make gripes about march of the saint and delirious and raising fear and you know they would do those things differently maybe even some of symbol of salvation, believe it or not, even though people would probably slap me for saying that, but um you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's always things where you're going to look back and say, "Yeah, you know, that was that wasn't quite right, you know, but that's I think right. that's the thing that keeps you going, you know that that's the thing there's i'm I'm actually when you think about it, you've got to be glad that something's just out of reach. Because that's what keeps you moving. That's what keeps you moving forward. You know, um, it's just that, just, just, just that far from you, you know? And so, you know, yeah, I, I, I would agree to that. I think that that's how you learn. You look back and go, ah, we did that, this and this equaled that. So I'm not going to do that next time. I'm going to try another formula and see if that, see what that gets me.
0: Yeah, as as you just mentioned, getting it that much closer to perfection. So, I mean, every time you have another chance at it, you're obviously going to try to do whatever formula you think at the time works best to be as perfect exactly. as possible. All right, the final home stretch. We have finally reached 2015's Win Hands Down. Uh, a tremendous album, an album that I truly love uh, beginning to end. And not just saying that as a armored Saint Mark, I I truly feel that when you listen to, you know, music, there's obviously some albums that you like more than others. This one I absolutely love. Uh so let's jump on into John Bush's comments on the title track of Win Hands Down.
1: Yeah, Win Hands Down is a cool song. I'm really, you know, that was the beginning of uh that record and um i think that um you know it's a song that it just it felt like the title track I, I don't know we wrote it you know we didn't really say let's write a song that will be the first song on the record in the title track but once we finished it it just was like wow that's that's the one that's the first song that's the one so um you know it's it's Has this cool, dreamy middle part where it sounds like somebody, a buddy of mine, told me it sounds like a Fellini movie, which I thought was pretty cool. And um, and then it has that double lead. And I told Joey, I was like, "You got to repeat that part." Because he only had it once in there. And I was like, "It's got to, you got to repeat that part. It's just such a great lead and and lick." So we did, and um, the song's long. Um, as soon as we wrote it you know and started touring, we've opened with it and to this day we'll continue opening with it. At some point we'll change that. but um, you know at this it just is a great opening song as well. So it has that cool intro where it just sounds like chaos happening and then it explodes into the riff and um, lyrically, you know it's one of those songs that it's, it's you know it's I kind of pay. Um, a tribute to the band and all my friends and all the guys I grew up with when we kind of discovered music and how music was just such an important part of our lives and um, and you know what it did to kind of mold us into the people that we are and uh, you know that's why I, I pay you know I say this is a oh uh, to all my old buddies the ones that helped me realize the shit was funny it's like it was kind of like our discovery of of adolescence and into our teen years and into our twenties and how just armored sane and how uh, all the other bands that we were inspired by, how it just kind of shaped how we how we were as people, so that's the basic premise of that song
0: the, the the track definitely has as you mentioned it's uh it's peaks and valleys, and it definitely you know m- marked a uh like a grand opening for the entire album, so definitely a, a great track
1: yeah it it's it's a great song. It certainly it came out you know we ended up doing it and, um, and making it uh, uh, a song that was um, you know it, it just set the tone for the record. It just really did you know that was uh, you know we were like wow, you know that's it. that's the first song and uh, now it's that's the live, first song live you know and um, and I think it would probably end up being a cool song to do as an encore too. So, you know, when we stop opening with it, maybe we can make it like a first encore. I think that would be a killer first encore song.
0: Okay. Let's jump on over to Joey's take on 2015's win hands down, not the album, but the title track off of the album.
2: Okay. So this is another one, uh, really fun to write. Uh, again, it's, it's it's very much in tune with what I said earlier about the simplicity of writing left hook. Um it's a super simple it's a super simple song, but the, the thing that makes it interesting, at least to me again, is the way that the 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 bass guitar moves around three different sections, which makes each section kind of stand out on its own. But the the guitar part mm-hmm. is is just super, super easy and simple. Um, so again, it's a, it's an exercise in, um, in moving harmony through chord progression and, uh, variations on that. To me, I'm super interested in that. And I like taking one, one part and turning it into several parts, but not changing the core of the chord changes, you know? So, um, I just find it interesting and fascinating so that was a, a fun song to write and the section in the middle um i i really like the thrash part with the whole weird sort of psycho jazzy part in the middle um again it was like i'm gonna i i sort of felt like when i was writing the song i felt like well what what am i gonna do oh you know uh you know but Solo section, you know, yeah, blah, 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 you know, same old, same old. So again, I'm always trying to challenge myself. So I'm going to throw everything, (laughs) throw everything. This is going to be like the Stone Soup song. So I threw everything in it. Threw in some fast thrash beats. There's a double lead harmony. There's a weird, jazzy, bizarre section in the middle. Um, I'm just throwing it all in there and see what happens. And in the end, I, I actually think it works in the end. But at the time of writing it, you know, I just thought this is just crazy. Like, this is stupid. I thought it was stupid at first. (laughs) But um, I think in the end, it it really, um, I don't know, to me anyway, it's a very interesting song and born out of simplicity.
0: How much does playing with Fate's Warning, for example, come into play with, uh, even though you're saying the song is simple, but it has a lot of different pieces to the composition. How much does, you know, doing that progressive metal stuff um, sort of feed your drive to try to bring different elements of that into armor?
2: It does a lot. Um, my working with uh, Fate's Warning and particularly with Jim, who writes all the music, um, that's, I mean, it's, he's, he's rubbed off me in a big way. Um, and, um, you know, I've had to look at, when I'm writing my bass parts, for instance, for fate's warning, I really got to look at what's going on. So like, I have to analyze, you know, harmonically what's going on in the music, you know, what are all the chords and a lot of stuff is, you know, has diminished parts to it. And it sounds really off, but I have to analyze stuff Mm -hmm. to see where I fit in. So that's been the Mm -hmm. learning process that I, that I go through. And these are the things, these are the fruits of my labor, let's say. Um, my my interest and my ability right. to do this later. So, I don't I don't find it um, I don't find I doing it in the wrong capacity. I try to keep you know I try to understand that armored saints, armored saint. I'm not I don't want to write and faithful, but I think that I can bring in certain right. uh, challenges and aspects to it that I've learned along the way. Um, and yeah, for sure, uh, faith has rubbed off in me in a big way like that. Another person that I that has that does this um is uh well a couple of groups that I picked up on along the way. Porcupine trees one and um Spock's Beard is another one that I listened to you know in the late nineties and early two thousands and um both those guys, uh Neil Morse and um uh and Steve from um, the Porcupine Tree. Those guys have, do similar things. Well, they'll take a progression and they'll reuse it in several parts of the song, but it sounds completely different. It's, they'll take it and harmonically turn it upside down or, or they'll reverse the chord progression or they'll do something to it. And I find it really interesting. So um, those, those guys also is, uh, kind of fueled me to do that as well.
0: Are there any tracks that in hindsight that you can pinpoint and say, wow, you know, had I have not been in Fate's Warning or into any of the, the bands you just mentioned, I wouldn't have, you know, added this to an Armored Saint track? Uh,
2: I, I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't... You mean if I hadn't been influenced by them?
0: Yeah, if you sort of... I mean, from what we were discussing a lot in the beginning was a lot of, say, the you know, the, mm. the British influence or Accept or yeah. Aerosmith, you mentioned Thin Lizzy, but obviously this stuff is, you know, completely different to any of those mm. original influences. There's yeah. things that you sort of, you know, sort yeah. of latched on to later on in yeah. your career. Um, so is there any place that, you know, you can, you know, where you can pinpoint and say, hey, you know what, had I have not listened to Steve Wilson and Porcupine Tree, I wouldn't have tried this in in an armored saint tracker or, or do you think that you still would have written the the same way without sort of branching out that way well
2: i don't know i mean i suppose if i'd ne- if i'd never heard of porcupine tree or spots beard or fate's warning i i wouldn't have uh my my journey would have been a little different you know <laughs> but uh, but I mean right. different because I, I would have gotten I would have gotten something from someone else, because I I am I do get things right. from a lot of different places. I I've, I've always listened to a super wide variety of music. So, you know, at some point you're going to hear Fishbone in Armored Saint. At some point you're going to hear Aerosmith. At some point you're going to hear UFO. At some point you're going to hear Motorhead. At some point you're going to hear, um, you know. Um, Jewish priest at some point, you're going to hear Tchaikovsky. I mean, you're going to hear Miles Davis. You're going to hear something somewhere along the line, because I listen to so much music and I, I do like to bring in, if not just a small granule of it, you know what I mean? Um, I I just think it's fun and I enjoy it. And I think it's, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think I, it makes it fun for me. So at some point, there's going to be an influence from somebody. <laughs> there, right. There's a lot of influence. If, okay. if we start uh, dissecting it, you'll see. That.
0: <laughs> yeah, obviously, yeah. yeah. I mean, no doubt. I mean, just by mentioning uh, La Raza and the different things with, uh, you know, Mars Volton, yeah. Santana, and, um, and and it's interesting because Maybe from a fan perspective, when you hear a lot of these things initially you don't realize that, but when you actually get to sit with an artist and, and they mention these little nuances, you hear the song it's like, Oh yeah, now that you know, yeah. now I understand where this part or, yeah. or that part came from. So cool. I get where you're coming from. <laughs> the final track discussed during this Armored Saint Storytellers episode is mess coming off of 2015's Win Hands Down. And let's see what John Bush had to say about this track.
1: Mess, yes. I love Mess. Um, uh, it's um, um, it's a song that um, more, you know, I, I, I don't want to get to a point where i am be obviously preaching because I don't want to do that because that's not important to me to do. Um, certainly, I, I think there's certain topics that it's nice to touch on to make people think because um, I'm always trying to think and obviously songs that are, uh, you know, deep lyrically have stuck with me forever. Um, and, and mess is kind of a continuation of La Raza a little bit in the time and the, the kind of premise of, you know, of the earth and, you know, taking care of the environment, which I think is very important regardless of whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or whatever, you know how your views are uh, politically i still think we're still on earth and you still to like t- <laughs> this is the planet you live on so it doesn't really matter what you know political background you have i don't even see why that's a factor in in something like the environment it's just absurd to me that that, that it really is but i know you know there's it's, I, there's more to it than that and i get it but um at the end of the day you know we still live on Earth, and let's respect the Earth, so I'm not trying to be Mr. liberal guy or or you know tree hugging dude. I'm just saying at the end of the day, you know, I raise kids, and I like to give them a planet that's maybe in a better condition than what I received it as. I don't think that's wrong, I think mean, that's cool, you know, so um the mess is mess is a part of that and um, but it also has a sarcastic overtone to it for sure. and um, you know uh, a humorous approach to some of the lyrics on that song as well. Um, killer song, really powerful um, killer drumbeat in it. Um, uh, we love playing it live. It's a powerful song live. And um and I'm proud of that song. I think it's um it's a great song to be second to win. So you know, win starts off the record and then Mass is a is just an awesome uh compliment to that song. So um it's a you know great one two punch from uh from the standpoint of the new the newest record, the most recent record and, and how it just sounds um very powerful. So
0: all right, I wanna thank everyone who hung around and Listen to the entire episode. This is close to three hours long. And it was a great pleasure to do this. Again, I want to thank Nikki Law. I want to thank John Bush. And I want to thank Joey Vera for making this all take place. And again, I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to this episode. Uh, please check out Mars Attacks on Facebook, uh, facebook.com forward slash Attacks. Uh you could find us on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram as well in a bunch of different places. Uh just go to MarsATtacksRadio.com and find out all the great links to find out where you could hook up with us on social media. Also go to iTunes and subscribe or Stitcher or the Google Play Store. So that's pretty much it. We're wrapping things up here with Joey Vera's comments on the track mess and we'll see you next time and I'll let the cat out of the bag right here at the end next episode episode 157 will be John Bush anthrax storytellers thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time right here on the Mars Attacks podcast
2: another fun song to write um Yeah, where did that come from? Um, that was, um, you know, we these all, all these songs uh, we write in a way where we very seldom do I have a story, let's say like a story about like um, the pillar where it was written, you know, 15 years prior to it seeing the light of day. You know, most of the songs that we write are written for the right. time. They represent where we are at the time. And that's a snapshot, it represents a snapshot of where we are in our lives right at that moment. Um, That's probably why our music is so all over the place, is we're constantly changing and evolving, and every record sounds different from the one prior. Um, And so um, this one, you know, this one, I think, uh, I I really can't tell you where it came from, (laughs) musically but uh but it was part of the session writing for um okay. you know writing for win and i think i just get into this role where um as again i start exploring this this sort of idea or concept and um you know and that one to me is uh i don't know why but it, it it's just part of that whole part of the first few songs on the record they just have a brother, sister relationship to each other. Um, and, uh, I don't know. Um, I think that, uh, again, I was just exploring something. I think I was purposely trying to write something a little darker and heavier. Um, uh, maybe even brutal was something I was trying to go for. Um, when hands down is, is, um, I don't know, for me, maybe a little more Thin Lizzy than anything. And then, um, but Mess, um, Mess is sort of my maybe attempt to, I don't know, explore things that are a little bit more modern sounding, you know? Um, and so, you know, I I really don't know, but, um, I mean, I certainly listen to some newer bands, you know, um, uh, I think that, uh, I find it interesting that there's some metalcore bands, a lot of metalcore bands, um, you know, these guys were the, a lot of these guys weren't even born when like, you know, uh, number of the beast came out or peace of mind by Iron maiden, you know, they weren't even born yet, but yet mm-hmm. a lot of the music that, that metalcore bands, write. Um, they're super influenced by Iron Maiden um, a lot of them have they, they mix this kind of uh, you know uh, kind of uh, hardcore punk riffing almost Slayer but then they add in this Iron Maiden uh, harmony guitar thing in it at the same time super kind of classical classical sounding right. melodies with played on guitars and harmony and it's a, it's a you know that's what makes them their 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 thing is that they're an amalgamation of several different things, but that's the most prominent thing is those two things, and I've that's I actually find it appealing to me. Um, it's it's cool uh, the the way that they've a lot of metalcore bands have done that. So I think that maybe some of that rubbed off on me a little bit, and I dare to say that mess is a metalcore song because it isn't, <laughs> but but there's some aspect about it that I that I, maybe I was. Um, um repeating or um you know exploring is probably a better way to say it um and uh and then you know and again putting it into a context that satisfies my taste you know for for heavy music um, again i like to write music that is really going to be a great platform for john bush cuz john has a great voice I know him I've known the way, known him for so long, and I know the way that he approaches melody and um he's got a bluesy kind of um core and I really make an effort to try to write music that's going to just make him shine to me to me the most important thing of any song is the vocals, and I just happen to be in a band with one of the best singers <laughs> uh in the in end of industry, so I really try to make an effort to keep things as simple as possible for him so that he has a great platform to shine what he does. Um, And so this is no exception to that. You know, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the song is, is um, simple, is simple. Um, And then there's, um, there's some parts that are complicated and um, busy and brutal. Maybe is like I said, can quote me on the brutal thing um you know another band that maybe rubbed off on me in this a little bit i don't i'm not afraid to tip my hat to the people that influenced me by the way that's why i'm mentioning bands and names and genres but uh i'm a big fan of mastodon as well and so mastodon is probably another band that again they take something that's just uh, super brutal at times but yet they are able to put melodies and Simple melodies over it, and I like the I like that contrast of the two things. Um, so maybe um, maybe some of that is in this song as well. I mean, at least like, a, you know, you get nudges by certain people, like you know, a little bit of an influence rubbed off here and there. Certainly, uh, Mastodon to some extent um, in some of the music that I write, and maybe particularly this song "Mess" that we're talking about.
0: Interesting that you brought up the whole. Metalcore thing and how Maiden has influenced them. Um, I've always thought, from the first time that I've heard the opening of the song, I always thought that it was very Maiden influenced. Yeah.
2: Um, well, you know, certainly Armored Saint's been influenced by Iron Maiden, um, and we made we made no qualms about that. They were they were one of the first bands that we all gravitated towards together as a group. You know, with the first first two right. first two three records. You know, are you'll still find them on their iPods playing, you know? So, um, certainly they had an influence in us for sure. And, uh, we've exploited, I mean, you know, how can you not exploit that? I mean, to me, me, Iron Maiden was another extension of Thin Lizzy as well, because of the use of the double harmonies and so forth. They just kind of took Thin Lizzy and black Sabbath and made it faster. (laughs) Um, and uh, But that's what we're great, what's great about Iron Maiden is they, they kind of got their own sound and then they, they just keep repeating it over and over and over until they perfected it. And then they, they keep doing it and they're, they're just, they're the masters, you know. So, yeah. So, I, I you know, no shame about that either.
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mars Attacks podcast. This concludes our show.